I actually think that the um the our political leaders over the last 10 years, Cameron, Osborne, Clegg, moving into farce, Johnson, Rees Mogg, and now moving back to to Sunak, have have helped the case about private education because <laughs> Welcome to Rethinking Education, education's critical friend. Hello once again, my fathomless friends. Welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast and happy St. Patrick's Day for those keen beans among you who are listening to this on the sneak preview Friday night release. I'm recording this on the morning of St. Patrick's Day and it seems like a good moment to reflect briefly on my Irish roots, if you will allow me. The name Mannion is an anglicised form of Omanin, which means descendant of Manin, who was an early 10th century king of the Sogain people of East Galway. This ancient clan can trace their roots in the medieval Irish genealogies to the Cruthin, or Cruthin, the earliest band of Celtic settlers deemed to have reached Ireland by about the 6th century BC. So there you have it, I am officially descended from royalty. Although, as I understand it, if you do the maths, and if you go back far enough into history, so is everyone else on the planet. And it's also important to note that we're also all descended from pond slime, so let's not get ideas above our station. Before I introduce today's guest, a couple of bits of rethinking education news, if I may. Regular listeners may be aware that I've become a bit obsessed with implementation science in recent years, and I've created an online implementation science training program for schools called Making Change Stick, an excellent name that was suggested to me by former podcast guest Sir Tim Brighouse. At the moment, we're running a pilot with 10 schools in Wales, which is being generously funded by the NAEL, the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales. In January, I visited the beautiful west of Wales to run a launch day with a group of 20 headteachers and senior leaders, one of each from each school. And the feedback from this group of school leaders involved in this pilot study has been honestly nothing short of astonishing. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to share with you a few excerpts from some of the follow-up interviews that I did with these people. I came into the training very cold to implementation science, so I didn't know anything at all about it. And I think for me, the way that the programme was structured on the day was really helpful. Those sort of short, snappy, looking at different elements of the playbook and making myself reflect on my own learning and my own school was really helpful. I think the implementation programme has really been the making of me as a leader. Um, there, there were many thoughts I had about change management throughout my career, but rarely was I given the opportunity to actually be shown and guided through them. And I think it's something that I take with me now and, and apply to, to everything that I do. So not only have I managed to make that policy so much better, but, I, but I've also developed the skill set to, to lead other changes through. And the, the really nice thing is I've been able to coach other people in implementation science. So it's having a wider impact on our school culture. Senior leadership teams often sit around the table, make decisions and then impose those decisions, for want of a better word, on the rest of the staff. At having a real staff voice and 
we'd started to do elements of this but having real staff voice makes a huge difference i would definitely recommend this training to other schools um, i think for me it's about looking ahead it's about moving away from seeing school improvement as these little boxes that we do every year and sit neatly into academic years and actually thinking about something long term thinking about how do we actually make strategic change stick and um, i would definitely recommend it i'm envious of those who are at the beginning of their career and have something like this that day was a game changer for me and what's the great thing it's going to make a difference for my learners and you know ultimately that's that's what you want and it will it without it you know i've been around long enough there's you know things that come in and go in this i think hopefully i hope this will be my legacy to this school that you know if I've done nothing else for them I hope this is what they'll thank me for in 20 years time I should perhaps make clear that one of those people in that clip was not actually from the Wales pilot one of those people was former podcast guest Elaine Long who was involved in the initial pilot study at UCL Academy but the rest of the people that we just heard from are Cat Place the head teacher of Jubilee Park School who I interviewed an amazing episode of the podcast with another primary head teacher from Wales, Ty Golding. That's going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. We also heard from Sean Thomas, the Raising Standards Leader at Milford Haven School. And lastly, we heard from Margot Thomas, the Deputy Head Teacher at Lamphy Primary School. I've been doing teacher training for many years now, and for several years I worked at the UCL Centre for Educational Leadership, which is part of the Institute of Education which is an amazing centre that runs many fantastic programmes for teachers and school leaders. And so I'm used to reading and hearing glowing reports and evaluations from teachers and school leaders about these fantastic training programmes that they've been taking part in. And so I can say with some authority that when people say things like, this training has been the making of me as a leader, and I want this to be my legacy to the school, I want this to be what they remember me for in 20 years' time, this is not normal. I really think that we're onto something with this Making Change Stick programme. And with good reason, as we heard one of the participants say towards the end of that clip, it makes a difference to the lives and educational outcomes of learners. Indeed, that's precisely what it's designed to do. The reason that I'm telling you all of this is that I have some exciting news to share with you. I'm currently writing a book on this topic of implementation science, also called Making Change Stick. And writing this book has prompted me to rethink this training course slightly. The content is like 95% of the way there, but I just need to rejig it a bit and the new version will be out later this year. In the meantime, we're offering access to the current version of the online course at a 50% discount for friends of the podcast. If you would like to find out more, drop me a line using the contact link in the show notes. Secondly, I'm delighted to announce that the Rethinking Education Conference Network is expanding. We're teaming up with our friends at Dialogue Works to organize a one-day conference called Rethinking Metacognition. Metacognition, which I define simply as monitoring and controlling your thought processes, is one of the most powerful ideas in education. Indeed, the Education Endowment Foundation suggests that metacognition and self-regulation are the most powerful levers of learning that teachers and school leaders have at our disposal. However, in my experience and in the research base, 
there's also a lot of confusion with teachers and school leaders often being a bit unclear about what metacognition looks like in the classroom. There are lots of misconceptions around, some of them promulgated by that same organisation that I just mentioned. This one-day event is designed to clear up any such confusion. It's mainly aimed at head teachers and senior leaders, but we're also including this bracket of thought leaders. If you consider yourself a thought leader, come on down. It's on Friday the 23rd of June in central London. There's an early bird offer for the first 20 tickets sold. That offer expires on the 31st of March, two weeks today, in fact. So if you're interested in learning how to harness the phenomenal power of metacognition in the classroom and in your own life, there's a link in the show notes. There will also be an announcement about the annual Rethinking Education conference coming soon. Watch out for that, but you might want to pencil in Saturday the 23rd of September into your diary and press on quite hard with that pencil. We don't know whether that date might move or not, but I think that we can be fairly confident. Anyway, that's enough of that. It gives me great delight to be able to bring you my fascinating recent conversation with Melissa Benn. Melissa comes from a long line of outspoken campaigners and prominent parliamentarians. She was educated at Holland Park Comprehensive School in London and at the London School of Economics, where she graduated with a first in history, the first woman in a generation to do so. Melissa's journalism has appeared in a wide range of publications, including The Independent, The Times, The London Review of Books, The Financial Times and many others. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian, The New Statesman, and to Teach Secondary Magazine, where she writes a regular column. Melissa has published nine books, including two novels. In her writing on education, she's consistently tried to tackle contemporary myths about state education and to set out the case for why we should have and how we could achieve a more equal system. With Fiona Miller, she co-authored A Comprehensive Future, Quality and Equality for All Our Children, an influential pamphlet that challenged the drift toward the marketization of state education in recent years, firstly within the new Labour government and then more recently within the coalition and, and conservative administrations. And they made the case for a strong, non-selective community schools. This was followed by School Wars, The Battle for Britain's Education, published in 2011 and described by The Observer as a tremendous book, an evaluation with which I wholeheartedly concur. In School Wars, Melissa sketches out the history of and struggles around secondary education from the post-war period from the 1944 Act onwards and she critiques the education policies of successive governments, in particular the coalition government of 2010 to 2015, because that was the administration that was in power when the book came out. With Janet Downs, she also authored the excellent book The Truth About Our Schools, exposing the myths and exploring the evidence which tackled some increasingly prevalent and pernicious myths about state education. This book was described by Caroline Lucas MP, my local MP by coincidence, as a hugely important book that should be required reading for every education secretary. And more recently, Melissa wrote a book called Life Lessons, where she set out the case for a national education service. And this book was described in The Guardian as an eloquent and much needed blueprint for reform when radical ideas are in short supply. There are many more strings to Melissa's bow than I have the time to expound upon here, and so I'll put a link in the show notes to her website where you can read more about the work that she does. 
I find Melissa's writing to be a uniquely refreshing contribution to the education debate. I really recommend catching up on her many excellent columns in the publications I have just cited, and I especially recommend the book School Wars, which remains incredibly relevant 12 years after publication, and I heartily recommend it to anyone who wants to understand why we have the weird, divided, patchwork education system that we do. So, without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent fascinating conversation about our divided education system with Melissa Ben. I hope you enjoy the show. Melissa Ben, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you for having me. Which is what, what I was taught to say when you finished leaving somewhere. But I'm saying it at the beginning, thank you. I'm 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 very pleased to do it and thank you for asking me. Mm, it's a pleasure. And and so so we we came to have this conversation. If you remember, we bumped into one another at an event that was about um ending the eleven plus. Um, and we had a brief conversation then, and, and 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 that was what led to us being here today. And I think that we'll probably touch upon the eleven plus at some point in this conversation. Um, and and I've really enjoyed reading your work over the years. I read School Wars many years ago, and then I reread it in preparation for this um, for this conversation. And it really remains very relevant, I think. That's um, great. And so I, I haven't I haven't reread it recently. So you're probably going to say to me, as you said on page something, and I'm going to have to go. Whoa. But um, one, can I say a really obvious thing? And this does relate to, to learning. I mean, it, it is very obvious. But if you have to write something or produce something or speak to something, you ingest knowledge in a way that doesn't really ever leave you. The detail might leave you, but the understanding doesn't. And you know, there are many writers who will say, and I think of myself primarily as a writer, who will say, I write in order to know what I think. And so I wrote School Wars in order to understand the moment we were at. And it turned out, and I think this is what you may be referring to, it turned out to be a really significant moment in the history of education in this country. It wasn't a blip, it has continued shorthand the Gove the Gove, Govism has, um, somebody calls it long Govid. Um, yes, but, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's Nick Corson. Govism has continued to shape and be sustained. But of course, being something of an amateur educational historian, it also links to before. So I, I think it was a book that, but I wrote it to understand what was going on and what I thought of it. That's my point. And all my books I write in order to understand what I, to know, to come to know what I think. Well, you did a great job because it was published, was it 2010 or 2011? And it was very quickly after the coalition government came in. Yeah, it came out, funnily enough, it, the timing could not have been more perfect from the publisher's point of view. It came out in September 2011, and I remember the week of publication, I was pitched into a debate for The Observer, which they published as a double-page spread, with Rachel Wolfe, who just started up the free schools, yeah. Peter Hyman, who I think by then was about to start his own free school, and somebody else who I'm afraid to say I can't remember, 
debating all of these things. And then I spent a year, and I think this connects to the part of me that is a politician monke, because I come from a political family where you always go out and argue with everyone. It, that followed a year of going around the country debating the ideas in it, um, which I wrote about for the New Statesman, my year on the road. So it was, it, the timing was very good. And I guess I was prepared to go out and discuss it with everyone. Yeah. And that's also another feature of, 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 of my life is that I will always go into what you might call, I don't like the word enemy, but I will always go and debate with my opponents. Yeah, well, that's some, some, something that I'm very keen to do on this podcast. And, and actually, the, the, the podcast was sort of, I started this just over two years ago, and it was really an attempt to widen the debate around education because I felt that it had become very narrow. Certainly, the extent, maybe it's just that I was in a narrow, I'm, I'm actually starting to think that maybe I was just in a narrow little corner of the debate without really seeing it. But I was very sort of engaged at the time when, in you know, Twitter and all of this, the sort of the endless back and forth that happens there. And I go to lots of conferences and I read lots of books. And it felt a lot like the conversation had become very sort of narrowly focused around the minutiae of classroom practice, essentially, yeah. around, you know, like how to do particular types of quizzing to improve retention of key facts or stuff to do with the knowledge-rich curriculum. And it, it was also essentially about how to make the existing system work slightly better than it is doing currently, which is brilliant. It's very well-intentioned, lots of people sharing best practice and, you know, all power to it. It's very important stuff to be happening. But it felt to me like there were some big questions about the way that we educate young people that I don't think have really been laid to rest and, and that people like yourself and the, lots of the people that you work with and alongside um, and have done over the years have been sort of has been talking about these these bigger broader ideas like just to pick one example one thing that I find really refreshing about your work is the way that you talk about private education as being a real problem <laughs> the fact that we've got this two-tier system and you you know you refer to it as at one point I think in school wars as like educational apartheid it's like you know at one point I think you used the phrase like let's just be blunt or let's be honest about what this does it reproduces and widens social and economic inequality it creams off certain types of kids that don't therefore get to mix with other types of kids and this very divided society that we live in you know the roots of that society we can see it in this very divided school system and that's just one example of the stuff that you talk about that i don't really hear that many other people discussing really well god do you know that i mean there's so many things in what you said that are so interesting to me i mean the first thing i would say is at the the period of the last 10 years has seen a lot of reform from government, particularly in that early Gove and Gibb years. But of course, at the same time, it's seen a transformation in the way we communicate with each other as a society, with there being a period. I think it's changing now, partly because of Elon Musk taking over Twitter and Twitter's changing and everyone's going, are you on Mastodon or on something else? But it's but that period where it became concentrated on this, this strange bluebird thread. And, and I've always, as uh, very unoriginally, sort of thought, as many have, about the polarisation that produced. Mm. It was a kind of cultural war around education was definitely being had on Twitter with people on one side or the other. And, and I think there came a point, I mean, I could easily have pitched into that and enjoyed it thoroughly, but I think there came a point where I thought, it's just 
it's missing out the bigger picture things, but it's also missing out the nuance and the detail. And also it takes up far too much of everybody's time. And and so, I, but I hadn't thought about Twitter. And this is one of the limits of being a campaigner is you're not in the classroom. You're somebody, you're a bit like an academic or you're a bit like a politician and you're neither of those. You're thinking about bigger questions. And those bigger questions, oddly enough, didn't didn't Twitter seem to be more about what do you think of Tom Bennett's behavioural policies or what do you think about, you know, one, but, you know, there's phases, Daisy Christodoulou's, you know, tackling of so-called progressive myths and so on. Yeah. But I guess with my bigger picture hat on, I was thinking, well, you know what, the way people talk about progressive education, that's just so wrong. I mean, I hope we're going to talk about that a bit of the sort of, how ideas get twisted in particular eras yeah. so look that's a lot to bring up i can see we're going to be like that you and I. <laughs> I think we're going to need a few days to have this conversation <laughs> there's so much to cover um and so so uh, yeah absolutely like so so in this podcast one of the reasons that these are long-form conversations is that i really like to get to know the guests and to get to know who they are and and often you can see the, the their educational philosophy the roots of it in their own childhood and their own experience of school and so i'd really like to to hear about that um and yeah. also your later experience of education and i'm now i'm also really interested in this idea of significant learning like moments that have really shaped us as as individuals and i think that it makes sense because your story has been shaped by your experience as a as a, as a young person and then as an as a um later on as a parent um i think it makes sense to start there but before we do that let's just quickly check in with what you're up to currently is there anything happening currently well, um with you within education that is worthy of note well I, I guess there's two possibly three things so one is that i have just finished writing a concentrated essay i was asked to write it on the new education establishment which is in effect going back over the last, I keep thinking it's 10 years, it's now 13 years of essentially conservative government, but not looking at policy so much, looking at who now runs education, who are the big players and what do they stand for? Now, you know, that's a huge question. Everything has massive amounts of nuance and detail, but I, I found that fascinating. So you start with how do I describe this particular person? The rather maverick, provocative people like Dominic Cummings, who were advising Michael Gove at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then Sam Friedman, who's turned out to be a very different sort of figure, but at the heart of this project. Yeah. But then going and looking at how certain academy heads and multi-academy trust leaders were trusted by governments and government talked to them, to looking at something that I actually have learned having finished the piece, but about how important the number 10 unit came in deciding education policy, um, looking at a sort of parade of figures and groups that have, there's quite a revolving door actually. If you look at something like Policy Exchange, people at Policy Exchange who then go on to be on an advisory committee and then go on to do something else. So. Yeah a bit of detective work so that's one thing I've been doing which has just uh reinforced my current knowledge or thinking about what's happening and the reason that's important to someone like me in particular is that all the polls tell us we're going to have a Labour government all the polls tell us that 
the Tories have run out of steam and they won't win. I don't think we can ever say anything until an election happens. But what this writing this essay made me realise is that Labour needs to think about who will be, who the powerful players will be and what their values are in education when they come to power. And I think they need to start having, do some smart thinking on what in that establishment is a problem for them, who in that establishment they can work with, how their particular educational values can prevail it in a in an establishment that is shaped by an era with I think different values and so on. So that's why that's important. And the second thing I can say much more quickly because it's just beginning, I've just been asked and agreed and very happy to be a member of the expert inquiry into Ofsted and the reform of school inspection in England, uh, which is being chaired by uh, I think I think he's a lord now, Lord Jim Knight. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, anybody who opens a paper about education, let alone involved in it, knows that inspection is a big problem for large parts of the profession, and Ofsted is a big problem. And again, I'm interested. I think we all know the critique. I'm particularly interested in what might emerge from this inquiry about proposing elements of a different model so those, those are two things that I've been mm, yeah I'm really <laughs> really interested to talk to you about about both of those things um the, like on the on the first one first the the new educational establishment or the not so new like you say the 13 year old education establishment and it does feel like lots of the the big moves the lots of the big pieces were moved as you say, in that early, in that early sort of in the coalition administration, really, like you say, Cummings and when Sam Friedman was working with with Michael Gove and uh, Policy Exchange were publishing papers around, you know, academization and so on. And that seems to be the structural stuff that was happening. But also, it feels like there's broadly been what you might describe as a as a traditionalist takeover. You know, oh, like, yeah. like that 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 things have swung hard away from the sort of the skills agenda. That was very central to to the new Labour administration, and you know I, th I, th I have it on good authority that Nick Gibb doesn't allow the word skills to even appear in oh. in, in in internal documents within the DfE yeah. that he's just like completely allergic to it, and you can see that also in you see that ridiculous thing recently in in with where Ofsted were did something about early years and they were talking about kids being able to throw and catch a ball, but they were doing these like sort of linguistic gymnastics and they were talking about the knowledge of how to throw and catch a ball. So this, <laughs> was a, this was well, a knowledge problem. Actually, that's so interesting because one of the things I looked at and through, in fact, a lot of the detective work of Warwick Mansell, who I think is one of the great underestimated educational detectives. Seconded. He has looked at how Ofsted has tried to make some of its research reports into particular how subjects are taught compliant with the traditionalist government agenda to the point where they use academics work and academics have protested about it so that's the, the other point about that is how independent from government are certain key organizations so that was something that came up very clearly to me in the essay i wrote also that nick gibb is the continuity figure of this period. I mean, he started under Gove. He was always very passionate. I remember the Guardian went to interview him and he had a copy of, of Hirsch's book on his desk, What You Say About Skills. Brief period under, was it under Theresa May or Boris Johnson where he was stood down? Yeah. And now he, uh, and then Sunak, I think, reappointed him. So he's a, he's a powerful figure. 
Um, yeah, so interesting. I mean, this whole thing about skills versus knowledge, look, I don't, I, th I think it's a very kind of, in some ways, a stale debate or over rehearsed. Mm. But I have some sympathy with this is just an instinctive thing. To me, progressive education, the best of the tradition, it's not about skills. Yeah. It's about perhaps a different way of teaching and ingesting knowledge that would involve the skills, just as I've said, if you've got to, oh, the terrible word project, if you've got to do a project on something, you have to learn to, and you've got to write about it, that project will make you ingest the knowledge in a way that probably will be anchored in you more than just learning the facts. So all of this is also about how these things are conveyed. Does that make sense? Mm. So I, I don't like a, an education agenda driven by the CBI's latest report. That's really that's that's my sort of headline. Yeah. I, I don't think I don't think we should be thinking about education in terms of pleasing employers. I think we should be thinking about intrinsic um intrinsic values intrinsic skills intrinsic knowledge yeah and bringing in those who employ but not letting them in some way determine the agenda so that's 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 where i'm a little bit sympathetic to a a marginalization of a, a skills approach yeah completely and and i think the, yeah the knowledge rich you know movement if you like is is Definitely, like there's a big dollop of truth in it. I think that you know it, it is really important. People in, in the past, there was a thing under New Labour. There was a framework called the the PLTS. I don't know if you remember that, the Personal Learning and Thinking Skills, and it was like this framework of generic skills like creativity and effective participation and critical thinking and that sort of stuff. And it was as though you could teach those things in the absence of any of any sort of domain of subject knowledge, as oh, though yeah. these are sort of generic traits. And of course, you know, to be able to think creatively about you know how to solve a particular problem you really need to know a lot within that particular domain of knowledge in order to think creatively or critically about that thing and so of course knowledge is important but it's it's one of those ne necessary but not sufficient things it's like, it's like yes you need a knowledge base but we can probably we, we've made that point now <laughs> and i think yeah, we, we can move can on I, can i just bring in what is the, the advantage uh, draw on the advantage of my very long experience and great years uh, great years in the sense of long years, is I remember I was asked to address, as a result of school wars and my debating, I was asked to address the um, all the heads for the ASCL, Association of School and College Leaders, absolutely terrifying gig. I think it was a thousand head teachers in a, the Hilton mm. um, in somewhere in London. And I just remember the gap between the stage and the first row of head teachers was about four swimming pools wide. <laughs> anyway, and I, what I remember then, I, I, Gove had just made a speech to the Social Market Found, Foundation, I think, about you, drawing using Gramsci and Jay Goody. And, you know, Gove, Gove made bloody good speeches. He was a Times journalist. He made good speeches. Mm -hmm. But it was so disingenuous. But it was basically saying, I'm bringing knowledge into our schools. The fury of those head teachers, the fury of those people who had spent the last, you know, lived through the new Labour years and done their best under that, now being told by this clever Tory that he was bringing knowledge back into it. I mean, it was just the arrogance of it. Yeah. And that, yeah. I mean, that's a political point. That's a political point. Yeah, that was, yeah. And, and, and it was sort of intentionally provocative, wasn't it? The blob yeah. and referring to sort of Marxist teachers and all of that, it was done very intentionally as a way to sort of to divide and conquer and, 
and it was it was devastatingly effective you know um as we've seen you know there there has been this the takeover and, and people who were who were hitched at least to that wagon at least to the knowledge rich wagon yeah. um were were appointed to positions of prominence and made Absolutely. czars and what have you i called it high pitched disdain and um and I think it was, you, you say it was devastating effective. I think it was profoundly damaging, actually. And um, some people crashed and burned. Some of Gove's uh, journalistic outriders crashed and burned, and I'm not naming any names. Uh, but uh, I, 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 I found the, the tone of it. And I guess I got some of that in the early years with School Wars. And um, I don't know, maybe there's I've got a slightly tougher... I, actually, I'm not tough at all, but I think because of my childhood and experience of politics, I kind of saw what was going on. Mm. Um, but I think it made a lot of people shrink into themselves. And of course, for the states, the state head for head teachers in the state system, particularly, you know, it's kind of do what you're told, really. It was quite authoritarian. Yeah. Um, and we, maybe we can talk about some of the ongoing problems as a result of that. But I, I would want to register my my anger at that tone of the debate yes i completely agree and by effective i, I didn't necessarily mean that i was a fan of it i, I agree that it was that it, i i mean the camp long covid I, I think that i think that it's been it just an absolute dog's dinner that that so-called revolution has left and we still have left with this weird piecemeal education system that nobody really seems to know how yeah. to stitch it back together yeah. Um, and so, and I, and I, I suspect that we might circle back to this to this topic again yeah. later okay. on. Right. Um, but just very briefly, if I may, on the other thing that you mentioned on on Ofsted, because um, this is something at the moment I'm involved in this group. There's this group that's got the, the working title, the Educators Alliance, but we're probably going to change the title because it includes young people and parents and carers, and not just educators. And we're trying to come up with um with policies that that you know that are crowdsourced essentially that we could work with with political parties on and one of the ones that we've been working on as well we, we, is Ofsted and we sort of came up with this idea we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago and we came up with this idea to to reduce Ofsted's size to to just like being essentially about like a safeguarding audit and then to have these sort of like local what we've called um collective responsibility networks like just a little sort of network that sits around each school comprising parents and carers and government uh, governors pupils and also people from other schools um that where they do sort of mutual inspections of one another's schools and i've been involved in something like this before there's a thing called research informed peer review that i used to do when i was working at the institute of education uh, and this would be much more solution focused and you know, informed by a sort of appreciative inquiry strengths focused implementation focused and it just seems like it's a, a nice way to go. And then I noticed in the back of, you wrote the, a recent book, um, Life Lessons, which was making the case for a national education service. And I noticed in there at the back, there's a little appendix where it says uh, these sort of, I love, love it, these little sort of bullets of, of, um, of policy proposals. And one of them says, abolish Ofsted and set up a local school support and improvement office uh, and I was just wondering what you what you meant by that. Is that basically what I was talking about with this collective well, responsibility network? It's yeah. I mean, I, uh, there's a context to writing life lessons, which I explain, which is again political. It was Jeremy Corbyn had said, "Let's have a national education service." Yeah, and I thought nobody's setting out what that might lo look like and making the case for something quite powerful rather than something just 
sound bitey. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. And in the end, I had to, I had to, I thought, well, I'll, I'll sort of set out a manifesto. And I guess the, um, let me, where, let me just find the Ofsted one. Where is it? It's not very long, this whole. No, it was just a, it was just a, yeah, the second so, bullet. On yeah, them. You know, a local, I, I wonder if that was somebody else's idea. You know what education is like. So yeah. at a time, somebody will write that or whether that's an MBEN special where, <laughs> but I was quite influenced at the time by, um, uh, I'd had conversation with Brian Lightman, who was Jeff Barton's predecessor at ASCL. Yeah who was um i just had lots of thoughtful things to say about school inspection and was very angry with ofsted uh, as so many people were but not from the point of view of like heads who'd lost their jobs or schools that had been downgraded but just said you know we need a system that is about local support and improvement so i think that may have been and that may have been an mben coming up with an acronym Yes, <laughs> but but thinking about your educators and arts idea, I'd really like if you've got that in any written form, I'd like to feed that into the inquiry that I'm involved in. So would you send that to me? Yeah, I'd be delighted to, and and I'm, I'd love to have a conversation with you offline about that because there's something really exciting happening there. I think. Um, yeah. Anyway, right. So let's um, let's get to know you a little bit and okay. and your own education uh, let's go back to the beginning what kind of school did you go to what was your experience of school like okay um so i started out in a posh little private school um so my parents had both i think been privately educated and they but they were my you know i think should i do a bit of context about who they were i don't yeah. I think that's sort of relevant so um uh, my dad when i was by the time I was born, I think uh, he, well, he was definitely a Labour MP and he became a minister in the 60s. Anyway, Labour, very much Labour family, but the background was the upper middle class of the mid 20th century and Labour people, They what they did was they put their children through the private sector. So I had two elder brothers who went to Westminster and I and my younger brother started out a place called Norland Place. Uh, which actually was where George Osborne went many, many years later. Right. And so what I remember of Norland Place, uh, I, I remember my uniform. Um, I do love, I did love wearing a uniform, I have to say. <laughs> so, and I remember skipping down to school and it was very, it was small. You know, that's one of the things you realise when you have been in different sectors, small classes, a lot of personal attention, I was the kind of child and remain the kind of adult, my friends were laughing at me the other day, that, you know, hands up the whole time. Uh, <laughs> every time the teacher would say, what, you know, we go to an art gallery, what do you see on the, on the, does anybody see anything interesting in this pe painting? And, you know, one of those really annoying young people, <laughs> I was like that. And I remember winning, you know, always wanted to win prizes and very sort of competitive, to be honest. Um, but, I, you know, I liked school. I, I, I've always I always enjoyed school. I mean, I think one of the things and I'm only going to put it down as a marker because I think it's so crucial and understated in this whole debate. And I think it, it explains a lot of the difference between arguments around primary and secondary education. Look, adolescence is an absolute explosion in the human self. Mm. And secondary schools are dealing with the collective impact. Possibilities and trauma of adolescence and but I, you know, I think primary education is relatively simple. On the whole, you're dealing with lots of keen, outward-looking, positive, pre, 
spotty, pre-sexual, pre-what's-it. And I, I just find that, I, I, I so often think about that. Um, yeah. So... Uh, so what, what, that, the reason I say that is I always enjoyed school, but the bits I didn't enjoy were probably as much about adolescence as they were about school. Mm -hmm. So I was at a uh, private school until I think I was about seven or eight. And then this is where it's relevant. My parents, uh, the new comprehensive movement was coming in. My mother was very interested in education because she was from an American background where local schools have a different place in the landscape. And local schools are more, they don't, they, they, America has all sorts of problems, but it does, it didn't have this absolutely class ridden structure around schools where if, so um, she was very interested in the emerging comprehensive movement, my father was, and they decided they would take all of us out of private education and put us all in local state schools. And you know, James, the older I get, the more I think that was just such a hugely significant thing for me personally but also in terms of my understanding of education class my understanding probably of private schools even now um and it's it's kind of it, it's an unusual thing for people to do even now if parents can afford to send their children privately very few of them very few will take them out of that system and put them into a state system yeah um and very few will just will opt for the state system even though they can afford the private system so I, I thought it was a very brave thing for my parents to do it caused a lot of consternation uh within the wider family oh you're sacrificing your children people have commented on it to me you know for decades you know i will right. meet when they would go of course your parents you know they did that very weird counterintuitive thing and look at you like you know um it was in the public domain at the time that that yeah, prominent it, prominent Labour politicians were take were putting their children. Yeah, in it, it was. It. I, I mean, I, I I'm like the archivist of my mother's papers. Both my parents left enormous amounts of um, archive, and my mother very sweetly left me in charge of hundreds and hundreds of her boxes. And I remember going <laughs> through the correspondence from people, personal and otherwise, about about this. And on the whole, people were quite negative about it. Um, but it was also a subject of public comment. And then we all went to what is often called one of the pioneer progressive, well, pioneer London conferences, Holland Park. Right. And of course, tremendous amount of criticism of Holland Park, tremendous amount of misreporting of Holland Park, tremendous amount of um, disdain for that kind of thing. But uh, my mother was a governor there and a governor for about 35 years and then chair of governors for 13 years so they were very very involved in the local comprehensive and in and my mother was an educationist and very involved and key in the early um well the mid-century movement for comprehensive reform so that was a big part of my childhood coming home from school and there would be the campaign for comprehensive schooling for some reason they didn't sit on chairs they I think they were putting together a magazine so they were all sitting on the floor <laughs> and then Brian Simon who is one of the great um, socialist thinkers on education wrote a book with my mother called Halfway There and um, so he you know get to know him and I've read his work subsequently and he's a fantastic writer 
And then my mother wrote a book called, uh, oh God, I'm kind of trying to remember. I should know her books. Anyway, she wrote a book with Brian Simon. She wrote a book with Professor Clyde Chitty. So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah um, who died recently. So, you know, education was very much, education was very much there as a set of ideas in my childhood as well. Right. But that, is that, I don't know if that answered, do you want to know more about my school or is I'm, I'm sort of me? No, 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 that's really interesting. Thank you. Can I just quickly pick up on, you, you said one thing about, about how the US system isn't so class-based in its education yeah. system. And that made me just reflect back on, it, somewhere in School Wars, you said, that um that watching or you wrote rather watching children transition from primary to secondary i don't know if this was your children confirmed for me that schooling remains one of the key ways in which class identity is formed in modern britain well yeah and that's one of my you asked me to come up with five significant learning moments and and secondary transition of my own children was the key moment for me because um i mean i can see I think when you're a child and when you're a young person, you see education in one way, you see it in this, about the institution that you were in. When you're a parent, you see it differently. Um, and you, and also you're an adult and you understand more how it works. And I, yeah, I, I don't know if you want me to talk about that now, but I'm, because I prepared for this podcast, I've got everything quite carefully ordered. <laughs> you're the perfect <laughs> guest. Yeah, well, oh, well, let's come back to it. So that was, that's point three, isn't it? So let's go back to your education and we'll come on to that. Yeah. Let's, let's treat, treat this sequentially. And so you so you were at this this big London comprehensive yeah. in the 70s in Holland yeah. Park. Do you remember what you, how did you find that personally, having gone from this very small scale private school? Well, I, I first of all went to a local primary school at eight. Right. And um, I mean, it's interesting because I remember, for instance, that we it's a perfect uh, rebuttal of progressive versus traditionist because we were learning French at age eight and we were also doing African drumming and movement and you know movement and dance and and I remember it as being very ordered and um, very sort of small c conservative and one of the things I always object to about people talking about comprehensive schools or progressive education is this idea that it's all chaotic and the child chooses what to learn and that's just rubbish I mean it's you know most comprehensive schools in the 70s and 80s and now are very small c conservative most of them have streaming and you know so I I you know if I had a life's mission it's to say can we please have a proper historical view of what the system was like and is like <laughs> now and stop talking in these cartoon terms. Yeah. So my primary school was very like that. The interesting thing about Holland Park, and I think Holland Park particularly, but I think it's true of a, a lot of comprehensives, is when I first went there, it was like a kind of, there were many elements that mimicked grammar schools and private schools. So the head wore a flowing black, black gown, the deputy did, they, um, in the late 50s, I'm not sure if they still did it when I was there, because I went in the late 60s, but they they lunched at High Table. They, um, you know, and streaming, when I, when I arrived, certainly there were 12 streams. So it was Holland Park and it was H1 to 6 and P1 to 6. Mm. Even we could all see that everyone in 1H1, which was the top stream, were like me. We were blonde. We were white, we were middle class. Mm. Then you went down to 1P6 and it was largely, I am ashamed to say, children from local Notting Hill black families, the Windrush generation and so on. So it mm. was 
you know, there's a lot to unpick within, and it's still true now, within a comprehensive framework. Yes, we were all at school together. And yes, that transformed my view of society, but we were still very segregated within it. But the second point I'm going to make is that as I went through Holland Park, it changed with the era. And it then became by the mid 70s, it was unstreamed. Um, They sort of abolished subject, discrete subject categories in some ways. I remember our head teacher, who was not the old head teacher, he went to Jean-Paul Sartre's funeral and he came back and he, he his talk to the Monday morning assembly was about Sartre, Sartre's inheritance. You know, we were bang in the middle of the 60s and 70s. <laughs> but I also remember it was far too big. I mean, a whole school assembly, and I once read to the whole school assembly or addressed them when I was 12 and was wearing purple fishnet tights and a miniskirt there were 2000 <laughs> students <laughs> and you know it and and that's crazy i mean it was too large yeah i think and i i i know there are arguments about size class size and all the debates around it but i mm. i just think to come into a school I mean, it was very exciting to come to a full school assembly of 2000 it was like going to the national theater or something <laughs> But, um, and we were all in houses named after 19th century reformers. So I was in Fox House and people in Macaulay House or, you know, so it was, again, quite traditional. Right. And so there was, um, was there no uniform then either? You were I wore about? a uniform for the first three years. We had a blazer and a t- striped tie and all the rest of it. And the girls would hitch their skirts up and all that kind of thing. And then there was no uniform. But it was, it was, there was some, it was, there was something fantastic about the school. You know, they put on huge school productions. They had a cinema club debating, a full school orchestra. We had some of the most amazing teachers. And I think when I look back, it was because it was the era where comprehensives were, you know, it was seen as a sort of forward, um, it was seen as an important element of a different future. Yeah. And so, some of my teachers were just absolutely outstanding individuals and I can still remember their lessons. I remember lessons about irony and pride and prejudice. I remember uh, reading As You Like It at 12 or 13 and I was cast as Rosalind and I just thought, well, if I'm cast as Rosalind, I better find out who Rosalind is. Well, Rosalind is one of the great, great characters in play. Now, I, I, I'm no doubt that somebody in my class who wasn't cast in that way would have a different experience. That's the other thing it's always your own experience of something. Yes. But there were lots of problems in the school. You know, some teachers found it hard to discipline large classes. Mm -hmm. Other teachers were teaching O-level history to 45 of us. There were 40 40 something in our, but they could keep the room enthralled with an account of the Corn Laws or um, suffrage movement or whatever. You know, so you learnt then that there's so much about personality in teaching. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say about myself, I went, I was there with my three brothers. My mother was a governor, as I said. Our family was very, in the best sense, invested in this school, invested in this idea of everyone being educated together. And I'm sure that affected my view of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that they, is it fair to say that you primarily see yourself as like a, as a comprehensive campaigner that you, you that that's a that's well, a, that a centri- centerpiece of your of the work that you've done in this yeah, area. I mean I, I I I take the view and I know how complicated it is I have a simple question why can't we educate all our children together 
Yeah. You know, why can't why why can't we educate all our children together? What do we have to do to make that work well? And to be positive for a minute about developments of the last 13 years, the one thing you can say about the free school and academy movement and Gove and Co was they were not saying go back to grammars. They didn't do anything about the grammars that existed and grammars exponentially expanded during the Blair era and the Gove era and subsequently, but they were putting the case for high quality all in education in their terms. And yeah. I think that that is, you know, once the Tories lost that we are the party of the grammar school, then you're talking about comprehensive. So the word comprehensive is is being rather exiled from political vocabulary and very demeaned. But yeah. um, but it, it it's uh, all ability education or however it's called is has moved into the mainstream in a way. Uh, I just think it could be a lot better. And also, we do still have a very segregated and hierarchical system, and we'll, we'll come on to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I suppose non-selective. Like, lots of people really pride themselves on being non-selective. And, like, lots of the discourse now is around, you know, disadvantaged kids and closing yeah. the disadvantage gap and so on. And yet, as you say, we don't have a non-selective system in, in all kinds of explicit and implicit and tacit ways um it's you know there's all kinds of selection happening um and yeah and that, that's again that's something else that, that you talk about a lot in school wars and it's not something that you hear so much now i, I wonder if we could check in on that maybe now or later on yeah. about where do you think we are currently in terms of in terms of well, selection? I, I think that's fascinating and, and actually i was thinking that as well because when i first got involved in campaigning a lot of it was around school admissions which is the most techy question but so important i mean it's <laughs> yeah yeah selection. right selection is quite a simple thing you know the 11 plus for or against school admissions are about wow that's something else but i think the bigger point which i'm interested in is yes it's true that the the govery are against selection and for all ability schools. Yes, it's absolutely true that the current debate right and left or more on the right is around reducing um, the gap, the attainment gap, disadvantaged children, we don't talk about the working class anymore, um, social mobility. Mm. But actually, and one of the things I, I realized and I said in my new educational establishment essay is let's look at the things they never talk about. And they never talk about the things that keep that gap wide. Yeah, private right. Schools. Yeah. They never talk about private schools. They never talk about the existing grammars. And I really think the system in places like Kent and Bucks and parts of Lincolnshire, which are like the 1950s, I mean, the, it's clear why the attainment gap is continuing there. They never talk about, well, school choice was a sort of, was one of the mantras of the Blair era and the early Gove era. But school choice benefits who? Those who do the cho the choosing. Um, they never talk about the things that hold back disadvantaged children, austerity. Now we've got the cost of living crisis. I just right. think there's something about the debate that is very, it's a bit like your point about it's all focused on the classroom, but the classroom yeah. exists in a social world. And that is not what this lot ever talk about, in my view. Yes. I mean, you'll Indeed. probably be able, somebody, if they're listening to this, will say, oh, you somebody wrote about it or said it. But on in the general discourse, they don't talk about it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And 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 um, 
and I think that that's really strange and it's something that I would like to understand more widely you know like there, there's, there's this there's this um there's sometimes there's a bit of a lazy characterization that people on the traditionalist side of the aisle if you like are Tories right that there's, there's yeah. something about sort of austerity and an austere sort of authoritarian approach to telling kids the best of what has been thought and said and having strict behavior management and so on that this is somehow a Tory thing but that's not really true there's lots of people who who identify that there was a there was a hashtag on Twitter a few years ago lefty trad who, who was saying that you know this is the way that you that you that you close the that you close the disadvantage gap the way oh. that you empower kids from from poor backgrounds is through a rich knowledge and uh, Ed Hirsch describes himself as practically a socialist yeah. and so and so I think that there are people who sort of who are central in, in centrally involved in talking about things like knowledge and cognitive load and and testing and and all the rest of it um who are sort of invested in wider social ideals but as you say like without wanting to name any individuals or to pick anybody out as saying why don't you talk about this or that the general tone of the of the of the debate as you say as somebody who's very much plugged into that you don't hear people talking about that it, it was interesting the, the private school thing came up again didn't it under under the last um, under under Corbyn, under the last Labour well, administration, and, and actually, which we'll come on to talk about, under Keir Starmer, surprisingly, who's yeah, right, yeah, fight over child. But there's two things I want to say about that. Is I think it's something, you know, I had people say to me and still do, um, oh well, you know, it's the right to understand the importance of discipline and knowledge. I honestly think that. I, I don't I'm not into the hashtag lefty trad, but look, you've got to have ordered classrooms. I totally understand a parent or a child who felt let down by disordered classroom and chaotic classroom. There's no justification for that whatsoever. I guess I think with my sort of journalist rather than actual teacher hat on, that you every school should be a place of friendly order. And order is vital. And also, we've talked about this before, knowledge is central to what education is about. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's really important. But I think that there are bigger questions. I think one of the things about the Gove era as well was it was this idea that you just needed to get a teach first, brilliant teach first person into a classroom, scatter their, you know, Russell Group, Oxbridge learning, onto young people that it was all about what happened in that space and actually mm. there are so many other things that have to happen to structure that space to really yes. close the disadvantage gap yeah yeah completely okay so so let's come back to your story and and so and and, and the, the thing that we talked about briefly earlier about becoming a parent and i'd just like to i'd like to ask you what you meant by that that phrase that you use in in school wars where you said that that watching your kids transition from primary to, to secondary confirmed for you that schooling remains one of the key ways in which class identity is formed in modern well, Britain. So uh, to put it simply, my children were born in the mid nineties. We went to the local primary school and the local primary school was probably not that unusual. It's one of the biggest primary schools in the country, I think. So it was quite sort of, again, a big school, but it was the most extraordinary mix of families, children so you had you know newspaper editors and the children of uh, refugees and you had the white working class and you had 70 languages spoken in the school and so on and I I, I would find I would I remember my father who'd been very traditionally educated really um, 
idealizing that. And it was easy to idealize in a way. Um, but I it was a, it was the local community all at school together. And I, I, I wouldn't idealise it now. I think there's so many things that need to be done to make that work. But the one thing our local, many things our local primary had was a, a, one of the first purpose-built refugee centres built on the school premises. So children who were coming from, you know, Afghanistan or Syria or um, Ukraine now, it still exists would be given lessons, help them to learn English, help the families and so on. And that, that's sort of what I would call intelligent welcome was really an important part of making this mix work. Mm. When it came to secondary and so all sorts of parents, they might moan about the school, but they would, they were, all our children were being educated together and it came to secondary transfer and it was just such an eye opener because there was a local secondary school, which was not, you know, there are some what's I think Tim Brighouse calls favoured comprehensives that everybody wants to go to I mean mm -hmm. the famous one in North London would be Camden School for Girls or whatever right. it wasn't that it was a evolving comprehensive and really what you saw were choice so school choice which was legitimized at the time by Blair and so on school choice meant that those with money uh would send their children privately so a whole group that have been at the primary school, they go off to the London private schools. Those who suddenly discover a Christian faith, or it was a latent <laughs> Christian faith that I've not been aware of, were going to the largely single sex, you know, or some mixed. They're not religious schools, but, you know, faith comprehensives. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose those would be the two, or some would be going to more favoured comprehensives. And I suppose, if I'm honest, there was, I think, and I think then parents who would, you know, parents, are, they do often move in a pack and parents who had thought, well, who had hoped that everyone would move to the local secondary school and carrying on friendships and all the rest of it, then they begin to panic and they mm. begin to go away and all the rest of it. So I was part of a group of parents. There'd been a group two years ahead of us who had said, we're going to support the local school. We're going to do every secondary school. We're going to do everything we can to do that. And uh, so a group of us chose to go to, uh, to send our children to the local school. And, and I remember when um, the Guardian interviewed me about school wars, they went and looked at the school, the school Ofsted, because they, I think they didn't trust me. And they thought, oh, she's actually chosen a favoured trendy London comprehensive and I think even the Guardian had to acknowledge that it wasn't that kind of school but I, I, I it was a very uncomfortable period I can remember I can remember I always remember it as in this way that you'd be going down to pick up your children from school maybe in year six they might walk home but on the whole I had a younger child so you go and pick them and I'd start to notice parents would peel off when they saw me and you know it was nothing personal because I got on well with everyone, but it was like, we're not going to the local secondary. So um, let's just, Melissa Ben, you know, she's always going on about supporting local school. And I just, that's when I decided to write School Wars, because I thought I do not want to fall out with or fight with my peer group of parents. I, and I know this is a bigger question. I know this is about bigger issues. And that's why I wrote School Wars. And then I got to know Fiona Miller, who had sort of fallen out with the Blair government over its support of diversity and choice. 
and also was saying let's support lo good local schools and then four of us started up the local schools network um which was an attempt to a bit later on to um take on the gove view that you had to academize everything that moved and so it was a chain of campaigning that to be honest took over my life almost entirely for quite a long period <laughs> Hello friends, if you're enjoying these Rethinking Education conversations, such as this one with Melissa, and you'd like to express that in some way, you can, if you like, become a patron of the podcast in return for various benefits. At the basic level, Rethinker, you gain access to a searchable transcript of every episode to date. So if you're a reader as well as a listener, or if there's a particular bit of any conversation that you'd like to listen back to afterwards, this might be handy for you. At the next level up, Fear Killer, you receive access to the transcripts and you also receive a PDF of Fear is the Mind Killer, the book about self-regulated learning I wrote with Kate McAllister, of which Dylan William wrote, I don't know of any other book that provides such clear guidance on how to harness the common elements of learning across the curriculum. Highly recommended. And at the highest level, self-regulator, you get the transcripts, you get the book, and we will also throw in access to our three-part online course, Self-Regulated Learning Superpowers, which is worth 99 of your Earth pounds, but here it's available at a snip for patrons of the podcast. So if you'd like to learn about the three self-regulated learning superpowers of metacognition, self-regulation, and oracy, this might be of interest to you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, if you'd like to make a one-off donation rather than becoming a monthly contributor, you can buy me a steaming mug of lemon and ginger tea by visiting buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. You can also support the show in other ways by leaving glowing reviews if your platform of choice allows you to do so, by sharing an episode with a friend or by sticking a link or some positive energy on social media. All such contributions and nudges, however great or small, are hugely appreciated and help keep the show on the road. Finally, if you're enjoying this episode and you'd like to keep the conversation going, I heartily recommend that you join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network alongside a growing number of almost a thousand other podcast listeners. So if you haven't done so already, please feel free to join us for free at rethinking-education.mn.co or you can download the Mighty Networks app and search for Rethinking Education. It really is a lovely, life-affirming corner of the internet and you are most welcome to join us. Okay, now let's get back to my fascinating conversation with Melissa Ben. Can we get into school choice? I know that you're not a fan of yeah. parental choice and it's something that I've thought a lot about in recent years as well. Um, and I just, I'm interested to hear about this. Why, why are you, um, are you so against the idea of oh. that, that was, that was so, so initially sort of um, proposed, was it, was it a Blairite idea, the idea well, of school choice? I don't know, it's just choice. one of those words, isn't it? School choice. I, I mean, it's really simple, James. I just felt that what school choice really meant was that parents with differing degrees of advantage could get better options for themselves. And, um, and could buy out of a local school that then became 
I don't like this term, but a sink school. And, you know, and then when you have growing inequality, that, that, that process becomes um, wider and there's a lot of latent racism in various communities and parents wanting to get away from schools they thought were predominantly one religion or, you know, ethnic background or something like that. And you see, and it's back to this thing. I thought, well, why are they all so happy to be at primary school with a mix of children, but not at secondary school? Mm. And so that was my take on choice. Look, otherwise, I think, yes, you know, if if choice operated with everybody, you know, a group of different schools, I'm not really sure. I'm not, I don't think I've ever really been sure what positive school choice would look like. I've, I've got an idea. I've got in an idea fair, in, in, in way, my just, head. Go on. I know you're going to give me because I can see <laughs> it exercises you in a different way, and I'm I'm prepared many years later to to amend my view. But I think it's about positive school choice would have to exist in a more egalitarian framework for me to be drawn to it. The way I've always seen it working is it just confirms um, unfairness. But persuade me otherwise, James. Mm. Well, I mean, <laughs> so so my version exists mainly in my head, right? And so I just want to, to caveat that first of all. But I've been thinking about, about how to change, because we've got this quite monolithic system still. Certainly the assessment system is very monolithic, but there are lots of schools that look very similar now, that look very, very sort of Govian, very traditionalist, lots of strict discipline, lots of kids being sent home for minor infractions of the of the uniform policy um lots of uh of uniformity around um curriculum choices and what have you and i know that there are lots of parents who feel really disenfranchised and who, who don't feel like they can that they can send their kids to a local school because they all are basically the same and they, they don't feel like that will work for their kid and and it seems like and and at the moment, as as we were t talking about earlier, things have gone very much down that down that path. Like in the, in the last ten years or so, lots of strictness, lots of kids wearing blazers, and um and lots of focus on an, on a on a very particular form of curriculum and things like the students having choice over what they do, like like schools that have electives, for example student schools you mentioned earlier that your school doesn't have uniform the vast majority of schools in this country have uniform but oh, yeah that was in the 70s i mean now they had my all my children's school had uniform uh in secondary they had uniform can i just say i think that 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 it's there's been 13 years of radical reform that has led to this uniformity it wasn't like that when when we would secondary transfer it just in there the criticism of the local school was that it was too you know, the criticism was much more a kind of Govian one. It was chaotic. It was worksheets. It was lack of discipline. It was all the rest of it. So I'm much more sympathetic to your your sort of um, parental wish for a, and and student wish for a chance to engage and be creative. Much more sympathetic to that idea of choice in the modern context. Okay. All right. That's good. To, that's good to hear. And and also, so I would I would add to that. So so for example, and I know that this is difficult to like the logistics of how you make this work. So that because of, of geography and rural schools and all the rest of it. But if if generally speaking, there was a sort of there was a traditionalist blazer wearing school with a with you know what have you, and then there was also for want of a shorthand an XP type school, a school where yeah. there was a, that it was smaller scale, fifty kids per year group non-uniform they're doing cross-curricular projects and 
doing lots of work with real authentic real world outcomes and so on i would also include into that category um democratic learning communities so i, I used to work for a while at a place in brighton called the self-managed learning college smlc and it used to be state funded it used to be run funded by the places used to be funded by the local council interestingly under a conservative when we had a conservative council but more recently i live in brighton when we had a labor and then a green council they stopped funding those places to to smlc and it became essentially a very low-cost private school but it serves such a valuable function for kids the many of whom most of the kids who went there had, had been quite badly bullied for a long time in school and were really quite damaged and a few of them that i that i taught when I was a mainstream school teacher, I then later on taught at SMLC. Well, we're not really teachers there, but we were sort of learning advisors. And I just saw them absolutely flourish and grow, not in terms of their mastery of, of, a, of a knowledge-rich curriculum, but in terms of interpersonal skills and confidence and their ability to run the budget of the kitchen and to organize people and to be respected members of the community and what have you. And I think that they would play a, a, a should play a much bigger role in our educational ecosystem. Oh. Lots of people crying out for that stuff. And the last one is homeschooling. I think that the that homeschooling is just this massive blind spot where we we have we give give the homeschooling parents no resources or no provision. They're taking their kids out of school where they would be allocated whatever it is, five or six grand a year to to cover their place. Why can't homeschooling parents have some some sort of equivalent vouchers where they can access libraries and schools and equipment and what have you and laptops to the to the same value as they would if they were in school? So that would be my version of of, of choice. Well, no, no, but that's I mean, I think you know, I'm looking, I'm I was looking at things in in a well, so are you, but I was looking at things in a very sort of political way, how how it operated, and also back to my central, the spine that runs through it is this this country's obsession with kind of class and who you are and where you're placed, whereas you're looking at it from a point of view of really parental freedom and children's freedom. And that places you in an interesting, but I would say, I would say that puts, you know, I think, I think it's still not the way that, still not the way our politicians who are making the decisions think about education. They're frightened of freedom. But, but my other point is, look, Gove, and Govism was all about freedom and autonomy for schools to flourish, but it's become the most centralised yeah, right. um, kind of norm core type experience. And I'm and I'm really sorry to hear that. But, you know, one of the problems is I always thought that one of the, I, the, the motivations behind the reform was to say to all those middle class parents who couldn't afford private education and weren't living in grammar school areas, which let's face it, in the post-war period, the middle classes generally got access to the grammars. It's to say to them, we'll remake your state school in a sort of pale imitation of what you think of as the best schools. And the best schools are the ones that Gove went to and Cameron went to, and you know, we've got a which are basically. I mean, I can't think of a single grammar-educated leading Tory, actually. They all went to very expensive private schools, as far as I can tell. Theresa May went to a grammar school, didn't yes, she? Yes, Theresa May went to a grammar school that turned comprehensive and managed it badly, and then she was massively against comprehensives, and Nick Timothy, her advisor, was very pro-grammar. Theresa May was an outlier in terms of the sort of the, the sort of privately educated Tories that have shaped yeah. much, so much of what we 
I mean, I always found it hilarious when I discovered, I thought Dominic Cummings, when I first heard about him, I thought, oh, he's going to be some working class boy who's, you know, made it up through the system. Of course, he was privately educated and did history at Oxford. Yeah, I don't know why he's got his chip on on his shoulder from. I don't know why he's got a chip on his shoulder. (laughs) His chip should have been on on, on someone else's shoulder, but he, he had a chip or something. But yeah, I, I but, but I I do think that that whole and Andrew Adonis had it and Tony Blair had it as well. And it, it's interesting. The point of your podcast is to find out what the personal underlying story is of um, everyone. And I do think the 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 personal history of a lot of the politicians that shape our system is very important to what to the outcomes. Um, but I'm completely with you i'd like to see a system that had more freedom and creativity and um and 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 flexibility in it yeah Uh, i mean i i i really would whether i'd call that parental choice i don't know we'll have to continue this thread we'll have to do a choice podcast or something but uh yeah, I'm not sure that I would necessarily frame it in choice, except that it would it would that that if it if if people could have more choice over it and and freedom to move between different types of schools and also choice for teachers because you know I know lots of really brilliant teachers as well who opt out of teaching because they they don't feel like the local schools are aligned with their values and they don't yeah. want to be a part of that authoritarian game. Um, well, and so they I... opt out and there's lots of ex-teachers in this country as you are no doubt aware. Yeah, no, I have two things on that. One, I did a piece for The Guardian about how private schools were going down the so-called progressive path. Yeah, I saw that, because, yeah. Yeah, and, and, um, and while state schools were becoming this kind of mimicking this traditionalism of another era, and Catherine Burblesing was the only person who thought that was a bad thing because she was, I interviewed her and she was absolutely furious. She said private schools are giving up what is their privilege. I mean, I think she thought they should be, you know, knowledge rich plus 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 and that made it marvelous <laughs> whereas everyone else you know i talked to this amazing guy director of studies at Dales, you know and it was just like what a dream that Rich, place you know? that place is amazing oh my god oh, i my mean goodness. but you just got to have 45 grand a year which i, I don't know <laughs> that is, but i don't have that the other thing that i thought i wanted to mention on this and this is a good place is that when we come on to maybe other people who've influenced us, I've been quite influenced and been very interested in and keep an eye on teachers who entered in the post-2010 period couldn't obviously thought that the whole thing just didn't work for them and went off and looked at alternative models of education. But instead of being politically critical because they didn't want to be derided as the blob, I mean, you can't get away from what this is all at the political level, you know. Um, and they didn't. So um, Lucy Crean wrote a really yeah. interesting book, Cleverlands. Yeah. She went and looked at the five successful education systems around the world. I think she did it, crowdfunded her book. And, and they were all sort of basically non-selective, um, m- much richer curricula. Um, systems you know comprehensive systems yeah and then alex beard did natural board learner looking at kind of more creative ways of learning again going around the world and i so i I feel these younger teachers who say hang on a minute this doesn't work but i'm not going to criticize michael gove because i don't want to lose i don't want to lose friends and not influence people but i'm going to look at this sideways on are fascinating 
Yeah, absolutely. And also people like Valerie Hannon. I, I saw a really brilliant talk that she did last week, uh, the week before, about um, her recent book, F Future School, is it called? Or The Schools of the Future? Oh, I don't know if you've yes, seen that I've one. Heard. Yeah, let me just make a note of that. Yeah. She wrote a book called Thrive, which she co-authored with Amelia Peterson. And Amelia came on the podcast a while ago. And it's a really good book and it, and it includes lots of so-called, I think they call them pathfinder schools, like you, like you say, these schools that dotted around the world who are doing things in really interesting, innovative ways. The, the Green School in Bali and High Tech High and, and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, that's Alex Beard looks at those as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then more recently, Valerie, it seems, has um, has picked up the baton and has, do has done that in a more more th thoroughgoing way, essentially. And, is, and I think she's actually, she's still touring the world looking at these these really interesting places um because and like guy claxton sometimes says and I, I don't know where this this phrase comes from somewhere else that the future is already here it's just patchy you know and there are there are lots of schools around the world that are doing things in really forward-thinking ways um where for example you can pursue something that's considered quite a progressive um sort of ideal something like the expeditionary learning um, yeah. schools where there's lots of focus on project-based learning but they have insanely high standards um and the kids perform to an unbelievably high degree and produce all this beautiful work as they do at xp and in other places um yeah. and so it's it's doable you know it's it's really doable and it's it's very frustrating um that and and it, you know these things are happening at the moment in wales you know there's some really interesting stuff happening in wales under their their curriculum review and all over the place yeah but i think it's back to this idea and i really hope labor can free itself from this mindset that the idea is the parent the parent wants a particular kind of school mm. and we must give them the you know i think I, I, the more I think about it, because you're absolutely right, there's all sorts of interesting things going on. There's lots of rebellion going on. I mean, I do think our school system is kind of exhausted. I mean, I, I keep an eye on the figures. You know, teachers are not, people are not. I, I thought after the pandemic, everyone would go into teaching because it was a a kind of regular job. And you, and, But people haven't really. And people mm. are leaving it and heads are exhausted and they're worried about I did a whole load of pieces about the pipeline for heads and there's a real problem there so something's not right but we still have politicians still talk about well it's about controlling schools and it's about um having a very traditional view of what a successful education is in fact i just wrote a column that came out today where i was trying to think about what is judged to be a successful outcome in the english system and you know it is if you allow for the disadvantage narrative that we've been talking about, it is a child from a poor background who goes through the system and gets to Oxbridge. And, 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 and essentially leaves their local community. And leaves their local community. And there's about 144 of those a year, free school meals, you know. Right, yeah. Whereas, as you know, the figures from Westminster and Eton, are, they're, 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 they're upping those figures, which comes back to inequality. But, I mean, you can't build a school system around the idea that narrow, narrow view of social mobility. And even then, as Alex Beard discusses very tactfully in Natural Born Learners, what you have to do to an entire school to create that kind of success is slightly worrying. Yeah. Kind of rigidity and what's worth knowing and 
what can be questioned and deriding project-based learning and not engaging students. And what about those students, the, the forgotten third, the ASCL talk about, who find school dull and boring and they come out feeling they failed. And I mean, we, we yeah. really could do better as they used to say on school reports. <laughs> you could say that again. I mean, I mean, it feels like, the, yeah, as you say, the whole game that we're playing is wrong. And and that's one of the things that this, that this Educators Alliance group is talking about, we're try, trying to develop policies that are essentially centered around an idea of a, an educational ecosystem that places human flourishing at its center instead of just passing you know, exam, exams by hook or by crook at any cost. Um, and one thing that's really interesting is that when you give kids choice about that, like in that place that I mentioned earlier, the self-managed learning college, they quite often choose not to do qualifications. Or they, I remember one, one student that I, that I taught, I was, I was tutoring her with science and I remember saying, you're really good at this. You could get an A if you wanted. And she said, you know what? I actually don't want to like, I, thank you. It's nice to hear that, but I'm, I don't really, I'm not really that into science. I just need a C to get into college. And so that's fine. And that's total anathema to like pe anybody working in the state, in the state system in year 11 intervention classes would be horrified that you would allow a child to get a C and not a B. Well, that's a perfectly rational choice for that kid to make. Like this whole emphasis on, on that that you can that the, the idea of of the maximum number of exam grades and moral purpose are one and the same. It's just a total you nonsense. Know, I think that's so true. But I immediately think about that example coming up at Prime Minister's Question Time. You'd be slaughtered if you said let's let a child get a C when they could get an A. But then I also think of the the flip side of that, which is you know, observing, as it were, the academically successful within the system. There's an awful, I felt, and I felt this was even beginning, you know, during my daughter's secondary years, which were all oh, the sort of later 90s. So maybe the new Labour years, maybe going into the Gove years. Um, just a hell of a lot of obedience and box ticking. Yeah. So that you would get, you know, and this is, there's a gender element in this often. You get clever girls who could um, take apart the mark scheme, see what you had to do, could get an A-star. But that isn't the same as engagement and stimulation and interest. I mean, this is really the nitty-gritty of education, and I don't know how politicians can address this. I mean, I will come on to one thing I think is a really good answer to this, which is the idea of a back model, a baccalaureate model. Yeah. But... Um, and I think that that that's the sort of political, that's the national system level answer to these problems. But I, I think you want, I would want to discourage teacher conformity, student conformity, head teacher conformity in, in the name of meeting accountability measures. I mean, I, I'm interested that the EBAC, which was a big part of the early years, I think the EBAC has... I'm not sure where it stands now, but there's a hell of a lot less talked about it because there's a recognition that you can't judge the success of a system on four or five so-called narrow academic subjects, not to mention the loss of so many creative subjects. Yes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And 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 I agree. This one of those with what you said earlier about um about you know you'd be crucified at prime minister's questions if you if you deigned to suggest that it would be okay to allow children to 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 have a say in which qualifications they get and at which level that that is, it seems to be somehow like politically undoable uh, or especially unspeakable. if they're from especially if they're from poor families that would be seen as being um 
you know, the soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I, yeah, mean, I get it. But at the end of the way, that, so gone. Yeah, if the middle class want to screw up their chances, well, there you are. But, you know, it's this, it's, it's this idea that the, the, that we've got to, it's not, that, you know, it's a, it's a noble idea at one level, but it, it leads to all these sort of, uh, what do you call it, undesired outcomes or perverse outcomes. I mean, I, anybody from a disadvantaged background has to be put through a kind of sausage factory system in order to improve their life chances. But from the evidence that I've seen is that it's it's switching off loads of children across the board in droves. Absolutely. That's, um, that's the thing. But like, we're not having this conversation in a moral vacuum. Like that it's already there's already, like you say, one in three school leavers who are branded a failure under the current system. And the vast majority of those are from disadvantaged backgrounds. Like we're not going to close the disadvantaged gap in 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 any meaningful way like you say without addressing these wider things but i think that the way that you frame that i think the way that you frame that question around giving people more choice is to say like let's celebrate a bit like what rethinking assessment are currently doing let's yeah. look at a wider range of ways to celebrate the achievements of young people yeah. passing exams is not <coughs> the only is not the only measure of a, of a of a of of a human being and also there are lots of people who pass exams um very well who, who are the so-called successes of the of the system who are deeply unhappy or deeply cruel <laughs> or just deeply like undeveloped in other ways you know um and we're not we're not creating rounded happy healthy functioning human beings who are democratically engaged in in their communities we're having the opposite effect in many cases like like i say that this conversation is not happening in a vacuum it's happening in the context of, of a system that is palpably not working for very many young people and adults yeah absolutely and i'd like to see i'd like to see an alternative political party labor get to grips with this at some level beyond beneath the kind of standards argument you know yeah yeah um, but i think it's i think it's a big big problem i mean i think it's a big big problem because you've also got and we've talked we've touched on this and maybe we won't go into it but we, we've got this wild west as it were of half of schools academies or mats and half are still in the maintained sector or whatever the proportion is and regional school commissioners and um you know just kind of who's running and did dfe running things and the government saying everybody's got to be in a mat by 2030 and the epi Educational Policy Institute saying there's no sign that will drive up standards and you know it's yeah. all it's all a bit of a mess. It and, feels like they're um, out of ideas up there. Yeah, I know. think I think they're out. I be I think they've been out of ideas for quite a long time. But, but I think, I think the, yeah. So go on. No, I think they're out. Of, but I think I, I I do not underestimate how difficult it is. How difficult it is to make change at all levels because you know one of the things that i'm aware of is you you've got to deal with the political world you've got to deal with the media and let's face it it's something of you know most of the opinion formers in this country are not many of them are not educating their children within the state system and i think they were there that was a lot of the reason why they embraced the gove reforms because they were outside the system and they thought anything that looks more like our schools for the poor 
but without the resources must be a good thing. Mm. And, sorry, mate. You know, I I I, I, I felt that always makes me very very angry. But you've got to deal with it. Politics, the political level, the media level. What are you going to do with these powerful mats where some of the chief executives are earning twice the prime minister? Mm. What are they going to do about that? Yeah. And teachers are having a pay freeze. I mean, I go back to Warwick Mansell. You, you want to check into Education Uncovered. He just goes into all the sort of nitty gritty of this. And that I, I can't support a system like that. Yeah. You know, I what agree. about public service? What about public service? Educate and the education as a public good. What about social justice, not social mobility? But our, our our political discourse has moved so far away from those kind of ideas that it it will take it, it you know and, and and the Corbyn era seemed to move back but didn't manage to do it in terms of education. Yeah, I really like the idea of the National Education Service. Um, and it was because it was a genuinely fresh idea of a, a, a national level of a national political party, which, as you said, you know, is largely seems to be out of ideas. And there's always a sense that, that people sort of like talk a radical game, but then actually don't deliver. And a really good example of that, I think I think I got this from School Wars, was when David Blunkett said something like, read my lips, no more selection. And then everyone was like, oh, my God, amazing. He's going to get rid of the, rid of the selection. And then he was like, no, no, I meant no more selection. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Just like, we'll have to accept the current level of selection, which is rampant. Yeah, it's just no, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I do, I, 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 you know, as somebody who put forward the idea of a national education service and wrote a book about it, I mean, it was treated, you know, the new educational establishment like ridiculous. You know, they thought Corbyn was ridiculous, you know, all sorts of problems politically. Yeah. But, the, you know, also the idea of free education. I mean, do you remember we used not to have fees, you know, university fees? It was £1,000 in 1998, no interest rates. Look at it now. I mean, you know, every time my daughters open up their pay slips, you know, the amount they owe, it's terrifying. And Corbyn was trying to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. So and, and yeah, so many angles. To, there's so many angles to reform. You touch on that. There's a there's a quote from Will Hutton. There's a chapter in that book in Life Lessons about the the National Education Service from Will Hutton. The same Britain might be substantially richer than it was forty or fifty years ago, but the national narrative is that organisations once energetic and growing are now unaffordable. The overriding moral imperative is to lower allegedly insupportable taxation, not to create public goods or to sustain the institutions that bind. Yeah, I mean. But don't you see that now with all the all the debate around strikes? We we can't afford to pay our public sector workers a decent wage. Mm. But we can afford to pay, you know, our CEOs a quarter of a million a year of mats. Yeah. But we don't hear about that. I mean, look, I, I you know, I'm not saying these are easy things, but something's gone very wrong with our with our post-pandemic dealing with the public well there's something's gone very wrong i think austerity was an absolute terrible thing yeah absolutely and and so so there's one more thing that like, we, we're still on this significant learning we're, oh I'm, God, I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very much enjoying this meandering conversation <laughs> this links to what we were just talking to what we were just talking about at some point in i think again it's in school wars 
you talk you talk about um about the new schools revolution the govian the academies thing as being synonymous with privatization of the education system and the filtering out of of public money into private hands can you can you shine a bit of a light on that what do you mean by well that? you know i think that's a complicated issue because obviously education is still free secondary education primary and secondary education is free but i i think you can and, and schools there aren't for profit schools there were people who said there will be for profit schools and i think there have been a couple i mean i'm not talking about low-cost private education i'm talking about state schools i don't think we've seen that kind of privatization but i think that that um you know just a few examples of how things change when at uh, the beginning when gove came in I didn't realise, or I'd forgotten that he appointed lots of kind of corporate hedge fundy figures to the be members of the DfE boards. Mm. So that brought in that kind of thinking. The uh, Public Accounts Committee have done a number of really, really interesting reports. They kind of provided checks and balances on the academy revolution. Um, on they argued diversion of money from schools in need to support the academy program. There was the whole question of related party transactions that certain academies were, um, trusts were giving contracts to friends and family. You know, these are all sorts of little nitty gritty sort of privatization uh, things, people making money out of the system. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, that, that the old head of my school, Holland Park, that went through another revolution because for a while it was the absolute model of the new academy, incredibly strict and streamed and far more than it was when I was there. Um, the head of that, it was only a single academy trust and the head there who got pushed out in the end because of a report on bullying was earning again like a quarter of a million Pounds, and then there's recently I was reading about Oak Academy, which was something started up during the pandemic that was supposed to be providing free resources to schools. And then there were all sorts of things going on. I think it there was one point, well, the government gave it 43 million, and then there was a suggested idea of a buyout that was going to make the Oak Academy sponsored uh, creators quite a lot of money. They pulled back from that. It's a different kind of system. This isn't local democratic accountable public service there's there's lots there's lots of it about isn't there somebody for, for christmas i got somebody got me a, a subscription to private eye and uh and i've not read it for years but it's it's really interesting dipping back in and essentially it's just there's just one story that runs through that whole magazine and it's just of like low level corruption essentially of people like lining their pockets with public money or with money that was intended for public use and it's just rampant at a national level we saw it in the ppe procurement scandal there's a column that they sometimes do called rotten boroughs which is just the same thing but it's just happening at a local council level instead of at a national level but there's just there's a lot of it about and it seems that that, that I, I see what you're talking about like with the academy system there was a lack of accountability that came with that shift a, a lack of a move away from local democratic accountability and and there was lots of people for example like like their brother had set up a, an IT procurement company yeah. and they used that to buy in all of their 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 software and hardware for the school yeah, and and I, I mean you use the term corruption i wouldn't because i'm always very careful about what i say but it's it's that the system has a la provided ways for people to make a living to make money and that's that's become 
more the case. But I mean, I think that's slightly separate from the issue. I, I, it's my mistake of local account account of all. Well, I suppose no, it isn't really because these, you know, academies and free schools are semi independent. They're independent state schools, so they get government money and they provide a free service, but they're completely separate from decision making in their area. Mm. Um, yeah. So how it will develop, I don't know. But um, I was reading today about somebody who provides, I mean, there's profit to be made in the system, isn't there? There's profit to be made in providing resources for, there's profit and jobs to be made in the education system and increase. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and some of it valid and some of it. And some of it not. Fairly, fairly shady. Let's not let's not use the word corrupt, but there's some yeah. there's some chin stroking decisions that are made. Let's just settle it there. Right. Let's get back to significant learning. Uh, you you touched briefly earlier on um the on the people who whose whose ideas you've been influenced by. You talked about Fiona Miller, and I know that you're yeah. close friends with her, and you've done lots of work with her. Who else? Who else has helped to really shape your thinking? Well, I was just thinking about significant learning for me has always been around. You know, I read a lot. Uh, I, I just think you never stop learning through life. So a general thing, you know, I remember when I met my um, my partner, now my husband, I, I remember, it sounds really odd, but I just remember looking at his bookshelf and thinking, oh my God, there's a whole world to learn here. And that, and I, so, you know, I'm being very, very influenced. Obviously we're influenced by people close in our life, but he, he, he's just so knowledgeable about and interested in art, architecture, um, poetry, short stories. And so that, that, that's the source of fascination to me, you know, and I've published two novels and written several more. So that's another side of, of my life. Mm. Um, and writers on education, you know, I, Someone like Diane Ravitch in America, who was a uh, worked for George Bush Senior, and then absolutely turned against the charter school movement, yeah, and the you know choice testing and privatization movement, which is very similar to what's happened here. And I think her books are amazing. And I think she's a really she's probably would be she'd probably be um, characterised as a bit of a trad lefty, except she's not a lefty. So she's a progressive righty. But, you know, her view of what an education should provide is that is in a way absolutely mine. And it's quite small C conservative because it's very got lots of knowledge in it, but it's a much broader curriculum. It's much more about a wide range of skills. It's very much premised on the idea of the good local school and the teacher as a respected educator, well-paid, and all the rest of it. So Diane Ravitch had a big influence on me. As I said already, I read the writings of younger educators who have tried to find a different way, as I think it's really important not to just keep talking about, you know, the um you know the old days because I really just don't have that view I have yeah. a view that we've got to keep you know it's a dynamic process and we've got to keep talking about now I I read lots of people who write about education so I, you know I've just been reading Tom Sherrington's piece on rethinking assessment website his latest well his proposal from 2022 about a baccalaureate model which I think is very very important Stefan Collini on higher education really really good and thoughtful 
Fiona Miller, you know, she's a friend, but what I also learned from her was how education works in the political, in the political arena, because when we first got together, you know, and started working together and wrote a pamphlet together, it was the new Labour era, it was 2005, 2006. And I really learned a huge learning curve about, you know, how these things connect to the people in Downing Street and so on. Uh, so I guess those those are some of my significant learning moments. So, uh, and actually something, oh, were two other figures to mention. I was asked to give the Winifred Mercier lecture at Leeds Beckett University quite a while ago, but Winifred Mercier was one of the early teacher trainers or teacher educators. And I read her biography, a couple of biographies of her, a key one in the British Library. And yet everything around progressive traditional education, it's all answered there. When you, the way she used to teach history to her female students in the early 20th century was just a model of what a good lessons lesson was and I've, I've never forgotten it she would make them draw maps of an area she would make them imagine that they were a, uh, they were fighting the Crimean war she would make them imagine they were Florence Nightingale she would ask them to do a presentation to the class on some particular aspect and I think that's how you learn you know and yeah. it's not that you sit there and go Florence Nightingale was born in X and the Crimean War was this date to that date some people really absorb that kind of thing and I was a kind of learner I was always good at exams because I could take in lots of information and if I took it in near enough to an exam I could do really well in it but that's not how I really you know that's a sort of cheap skill yeah you know and the final person this is something quite recently there's a memorial lecture to my mother every year, the Caroline Ben Memorial Lecture. And the one who get the person who was asked to give it last November was Michael Rosen, who is a fantastic figure, a really interesting figure. Yeah. And he lost his voice. So he arrived with his lecture and he couldn't read it. And I, as the chair of the event, I had to read Michael Rosen's lecture. And as I always say, it's the best lecture I've ever given. <laughs> because it it was such a joy to read. And it was on really serious stuff, the kind of stuff we're talking about. But somebody told me he's learned a lot from Raymond Carver, the writer, but it was so flexible a speech and so joyful and so learned and so light and so engaging. And I had a ball reading out Michael Rosen's lecture. And he, he actually wrote on Twitter, very sweetly he said I couldn't give the lecture but Melissa Penn read it brilliantly and I know I really I just was you know when you're really involved in something it's what the psychologists call flow yeah. the science of flow there's you're not aware of an audience you just take and I I've been pondering that experience for the last three months and thinking what does Michael Rosen do in his writing and his thinking that is so engaging on the human level because you know most education talks and lectures are stat driven and um they're kind of uh you know really important and worthy and and not very engaging <laughs> so from now on i'm going to give all i'm going to i'm going to be like michael rosen i'm going to be a fully rounded human yeah absolutely i mean it's just a lightness isn't it that you mentioned ted rag was really good at that as well uh just bringing lightness and silliness yeah. and humor he was topics. very funny yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then uh, just, uh, as we're rounding off this significant learning bit, 
Um, just looking back over this period of of uh, did you say twenty years since you since you were, since you've been campaigning, um, what are your senses of of what have you what have you learned from that journey and like what is what would have you, like any sort of highs or lows that stick out and any sense around you know just like the nature of of trying to make stuff oh, happen. I, oh, I tell you, I think. Well, I, I think like anything you do, the more you know about it the more difficult it is in a way. You know, I don't think exhortation works as a form of campaigning. I've come to realise, I, I, actually, I still do not know to this day what create what makes a successful campaign and what creates change, but I have more of an idea of the elements of it. But I, so there's many joys of campaigning or there's many things I've learned about it. Campaigning is as much about listening as talking. It's as much about learning as telling. It's collaboration. Um, it's bringing people with you. Uh, but it's in terms of the political world, because remember, I do come from a Labour Party world. I grew up watching politics operate at that parliamentary pragmatic level. Mm. And and you that doesn't leave you. So what what will influence what will change the mind? How do you make laws change and all the rest of it? I think politicians are rather easy to read creatures. If they think there's a swell against something and there comes a moment where there is, they will make the change. And so I've learned you've got, it's no good just going to a politician and saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And they hang their head and they go, yes, you're absolutely right. Or they don't hang their head and they don't even see you. Um, it's saying that people want this change and then saying here's a way you might make that change and possibly learning that you incremental change is better than no change. Um, you know, if, if as everyone says about education, you wouldn't start from here. <laughs> but if, if, if we had to make an education system for this country, <clears throat> we would not start with schools that cross 45,000 and coastal schools that haven't seen a physics teacher for 40 years. You just wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. But, you know, it's also I've learned it's very, very difficult. So I've campaigned on things like the 11 plus for a long time on comprehensive education. And I don't know, I suppose you don't know what success you've had till maybe after you're dead. Not you personally, but the things that you believe in. But I like to think writing, you know, I think I'm, I'm, am I unusual as a campaigner who writes? I'm not an academic, but I write. So I wrote School Wars to be a book that might be quite engaging on these issues. So I kind of use things I'd learned from writing novels to start every chapter with something that I hope would dry, would draw people in. So I guess that's my particular. Yeah, skill. well, you do it very well. It's really readable. And likewise, your columns and articles are really, and you often start those with a hook with the, you know. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very readable. And so I suppose it's a process of just like having of having workable ideas and having them floating around. There, there's another quote in Life Lessons from Milton Friedman that you that you picked yes. up at the start of one. Where he says, um, only a crisis, either actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, my friend Peter Moss, who's a brilliant early years radical educator uh, academic he's always using that Milton Friedman quote 
And it's true. But the thing is, we've had so many crises, haven't we? I mean, austerity was a crisis. Brexit was a crisis. The pandemic was a crisis. I really thought during the pandemic that post-pandemic, the world would shift on its axis a bit on all these things. But it's odd when you've got a ruling party and a ruling class, to use that old left phrase, that just is going to hang on whatever. Yeah. I'd never have thought we'd come to the point where the Tories would be in pitch battle with the nurses, although that may be shifting on this day because they've agreed to talk, because they're not going to win against the nurses, they're just not. Um, but so uh, Milton Friedman, he's, he's dead, isn't he? But yeah, he I might, think so. he, yeah, he'd have to revise that quote, I think. But having said that, I do think there are ideas lying about. So I think if we look at, say, the comprehensive idea, it is still there. It's just not called comprehensive, but it's all ability schools that is there. I think to to mention something about campaigning, when I was chair of Comprehensive Future, the cross-party group against for fair school admissions and for um, ending the 11 plus, it was a real cross-party moment when the Theresa May wanted to expand grammars. And I was doing meetings with all sorts of people in the academy and free school movement and Tories who were against it. And I thought, yeah, something has changed there. So that was a success. Nobody thought you should expand grammars. And I think probably rethinking assessment, those ideas are now taking root. Um, and I think the private school issue has come to the fore. So, yes, it's just that the timing of it all is a bit unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. OK, so so let's come back to I want to get onto the private school question, because I just think that you've got some really interesting ideas there. But let's let's move into the to the rethinking education part of this conversation. And I know that we've talked a lot about rethinking education already, but we'll, we'll move into this section of the podcast as proper, as it were. So firstly, essentially, there are three sort of broad headings here, positives, challenges and potential solutions to those challenges. So let's start with the positives. What are we getting right currently? What do you like the look of? What would you like to boost the signal of? Gosh, you know, when I was thinking about this in preparation, I, I was I was struggling a bit. I mean positives i would say it's those schools and you we've talked about them a bit already that are trying to do things differently and appear to be succeeding and i was going to mention xp which i know is quite often xp in doncaster mm. and the reason i was going to mention it is because over the years i suppose this is the result being a campaigner i'm often asked to go and look at schools that were trying to sort of buck the trend and do things differently but one of the things i notice was that I would go to schools and think gosh this is amazing they're doing really interesting things but their Ofsted or their exam results if they weren't good you couldn't get traction with their approach do you see what I mean mm -hmm. um, people would say well that's all very well that they have children giving presentations at the age of 12 but their headline GCSE results are terrible so they're failing the disadvantage and I think one of the things about XP is, and I, I'm i pretty sure they have had good Ofsted results and they have had good exam results. And you made reference to that. Their standards are very high, but their approach, project-based, expeditionary-based, however you want to, uh, human-based, human is, very, is very counter to what most schools are doing. So that is a positive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And then somebody said to me, a very, very smart education journalist who is young and only has known this post 2010 world. Well, she said to me, yeah, XP is great, but there's no sign you could scale up on that. But I guess that I put that under a challenge. How do you scale up on that? How do you have more schools like that? Which as you've indicated, parents would really like a lot yeah. of them. I don't see why you why you couldn't scale it up. I mean, they, so one thing is that they have small year groups. They only have 50 kids in a year group. And when they became oversubscribed, they just opened up another site next door, didn't they? So there's XP and then XP East, and they have 50 kids per year group. But they publish, they're like open source, aren't they? They publish all of their stuff. If you want to know how they do it, they, they make it financially work. Like it does seem, it does seem difficult to think, especially as a, as a secondary school where you've got, you know, science equipment and, you know, like PE facilities and, you know, things that sort of cost a bit of money. How could you do that, you know, economies of scale and all the rest of it, if there's only 50 kids in a year group, but they they make it work, you know? And so I don't see that there's any reason why that shouldn't work. If, if there's a, if there was a sort of an XP starter kit, as it were, yeah. you know, there, there, there are only quite a few features of that school that really, like I've visited XP um, and it is an amazing place, but also it felt quite schooly in many ways. Like the lessons that I was in felt pretty standard lessons, you know, um, it felt school shaped, but they have grew, you know, they have this very sort of strong pastoral system. They have yeah. these cross-curricular um, activities, uh, sorry, expeditions that they you know organize their curriculum around, but they're mapped against the national curriculum. They do GCSEs, you know, it's 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 a fairly schooly place. Well, I well, I think you probably have to do that. I mean, one of the things I've realised is that you have to, it's part of being incremental, I suppose, although not that I would call XP incremental, but you have to create change within the system, you know, be reassuring to yeah. the parents of politicians. But I think one of the cheering things about XP is it's not a very affluent, you know, the students are not from affluent backgrounds mm. because let's face it, if you have a group of children who've, you know, learnt about Mark Rothko when they're young and been to museums from the age of two and all the rest of it. It's a lot easier to do these kind of things. This XP is taking children from, you know, not very well off homes back to our disadvantaged narrative and really engaging them and making them love school. And it is school. Although I did read a quote um, just this morning from a student at XP who said it doesn't feel like school. It feels like a house and it feels like I'm, you know, so there's quite an emphasis on the family element of it, but that's yeah. small. So I see that as a positive. I mean, I do see other things as a positive, but again, they're rather abstract. I mean, I'm I'm on the board of Forum, the magazine that's for age uh, comprehensive reform, age three to 19. And one of yeah. the key ideas uh, that's part of the Forum thinking is learning without limits, getting rid of this idea of, streaming children you know because it's one thing to have an all ability school where you put children in sets it's another to say we're not going to recognize the idea of ability and we're all going to learn together and so on which is really quite radical in the current landscape but i like the things i've seen of the learning without limits project so alison peacock who's now the head of the chartered college of teaching yeah. used to run this amazing uh, primary school in Hertfordshire called Roxham, which again got outstanding Ofsted and outstanding results, but was probably a bit like XP, slightly different, run in a different way, but using mm. the learning without limits 
uh, approach. So those are positives. Um, I mean, look, the thing about schools are human communities. There's positives in every school around the country. You know, mm. there's no question. And I think it's really important to recognise that. And there came a point in my campaigning and listening to other campaigners where there could be a very, very sort of negative, draggy down, it's all awful tone. And I think it's important to not use that tone um, while recognising the very real problems in the system Often a lot of, well, this is not a positive, but I'll say it quickly. Often a lot of young teachers will contact me and say, can I talk to you? I'm thinking of leaving. And it's very dispiriting to hear their stories. They really want to teach, but they just feel controlled and exhausted and mm. couldn't have a life outside teaching and so on. But that's not a positive. So ignore that last bit. <laughs> no, I know. I know what you mean. Like, like, like the positives quickly turn to negatives because there are there's somebody, somebody. I, I saw a quote recently. Somebody said that the education system is like a wish in a fairy tale that's gone horribly wrong. And I, I think about that often because it really seems like it's such a good idea to have these community places where you send your kids so that parents can go to work staffed by very caring compassionate well-qualified intelligent lovely people and as you say you know that you've you've been out to visit lots of schools in, in through your work and I, I, I go out and visit schools all the time through my work and they're always amazing places like I, I always feel lifted having visited a school seeing the way that the kids interact with teachers working with teachers themselves and whether that's you know schools in very difficult circumstances or some like leafy private school somewhere they are really interesting, lovely places. And yet there's just this weird sort of like self-defeating vest that we sort of seem to have dragged over the education system where lots of people are sort of miserable within it, within this amazing place where with human connection and creativity and learning, we're sort of making one another miserable and, and ill. You know, if you look at the, the mental health statistics, people often talk around the mental health crisis among children and young people but the mental health of teachers and school leaders is in terrible shape as well um and like you say there are many people who who want to get out of this system and and you that's a massive what? problem i think we've got if you think about somewhere like afghanistan you know reports where girls can't learn at all and there mm. are secret schools and they're questioning education for half the population i mean how blessed are we that we have you know, every child has the right to go to school and um, we have the basis. I think we, we should see it as we have the basis for an am amazing system. And also education is so central to our debate about our society. I mean, given how central it is, it's amazing we haven't made more progress, um, but it is. So you have something like the Times Education Commission, which sat and took evidence for you've got the uh what is it called the foundation for educational development the car yeah. you know we've got so many initiatives so many think tanks so many things we talk about education all the time mm -hmm. we make it a central matter in our society and that is a positive i think that is a positive but i think what we are missing out here and that is part of the problem that you identify about exhaustion and mental health is partly the accountability and narrowness of the system, but partly resources and inequality in resources. You know, I think if you're going, and this will lead us up to private schools, if you are going to a school where it, you're 
£45,000 a year is being spent on you compared and you're from a very wealthy family and you're going to a school where your parents are choosing now between heating and eating and you're being educated at five six thousand a year i mean that really is 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 a key issue the cut you know austerity the familiar figures about what is it eight percent ten percent cut in funding since 2010 you know you go back to the new labor years and many things to say about it but there was a sense of optimism and expansion and there was money there mm. in the gordon brown era which was about extended schools and you know i feel it's so crucial to have to know that you need services around not your services around schools mental health professionals schools working with families in trouble in fact it makes me think and this is a positive i did a piece of work for hackney council and Hackney Council is like several schools. I mean, Tower Hamlets has a slightly different version. Camden has a different version. But they have quite a partnership model. They still have kept the local authority idea. And, you know, they're, all the professionals are working together to support what schools are doing. And I'm not saying it always works, but it seemed very, very positive. And so they're linking up schools with trying to prevent gang warfare, linking up schools and employment, uh, linking up schools and mental health so there are that's that's different from xp which is a particular model of a sort of different kind of teaching style this is a different model of, uh, this is like local authorities as were or could be or partnership models as could be that just have a broader view of what education needs to work mm. and it's partly it's about resources but it's also about supporting services and I think that's something we could build on. And again, that's quite a appealing idea for politicians, isn't it? Because, it, you know, if you can make an idea just sound like common sense, you're going to win an argument. Rather yes. than common sense, rather than, I hate the use of the word ideology because it's used in so many wrong ways. But if, if you just say, look, this just makes sense. There yeah. are children who are going to need more to get through their education. Let's find a way to give it to them. I think some of the problems is there's, there's like because it, because the nature of what we're talking about is quite complex. Hence, this podcast being long form because there's a lot there's a lot to talk about. It's that the, the, the people talk about this word retailable, don't they? In edu in 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 policy terms, yeah, like, like you need to be, you need to have something that you can explain to somebody on the doorstep in five words or less, or else you're not going to get through to the sort of, to the voters that count, sort of thing. And so everything just gets simplified down into this basic level, and it's like talking about something that's really complicated um about you know how to how to you know create a more diverse educational ecosystem that fits lots of different people's needs it's just like it's too difficult to sell i know but yeah it's some, some people call it the elevator pitch don't they uh same thing that you you i think that's the idea that you can sell your idea from floor one to floor four and to a busy a busy political person yeah but you know in a way i agree with you in another way i think you can put common sense ideas quite simply you may have to go up to floor seven for some of them <laughs> but you can and I, th I think I, I I feel I've just convinced myself the idea that schools need supporting services uh, in order for education to really flourish particularly for those who need it most well that's floor two that only yeah yeah services. I think that's very important of course that was the idea of local the local authority model at its best 
Yeah. And of course, that was all swept away with, um, you know, the academy and free school or started with the City Technology College. And that's really an argument between an idea about how much local democracy should be allowed to enter into our services and so on. Um, but I agree with you. I think it's very complicated, but I think there are proposals that can work. But I do think one of the things one of the things I've learned with campaigning around education, and Tony Blair did this well with his education, education, education slogan, is I think the politicians need to, and the think tanks behind them, need to do a massive amount of preparation for coming up for new ideas if they want to put them into process. And then they have to find a way to put them fairly straightforwardly. Mm. Because a voter... You know, you go to a voter on the doorstep, your average voter, and I've done a lot of canvassing in my life, and you say something like, well, you see, the trouble with the academy model is it doesn't have the democratic accountability of the maintained model, but on the other hand, it has a flat... You know, most voters are going to say, as somebody once said to Lisa Nandy, look, love, you go away and sort it out. This isn't my problem. You know, so... They're, they're, you do have to be able, but the work has to be done somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think pre-New Labour, there was a lot of work done. From my research into the Gove era, they did a lot of work on their free schools. And and, and so Labour now, I hope, presume, and know to some extent, is having to do a lot of work about what they're going to do. I would hope so. They they certainly hit the ground running in '97. Like the the education that initial act that they brought in was was teeming with ideas. They were really go, going for it. I very much hope that there's if the, if there is that stuff happening behind the scenes, they, it's a very well kept secret. Um, <laughs> well, they're um, worried. They're worried the Tories will steal their best ideas. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I understand the need to play, you know, keep their cards close, close to their chests and so on. Okay, so so let's get into the challenges. What do you see as the major challenges that we face currently? Well, I see the major challenges. I mean, the primary one is the one that's always interested me, is back to this class thing, is the inequality in educational, the inequality in the hierarchy of our system. And, you know, you, you go back and read, as I did for writing uh, School Wars and other things, about the 1940s. The private schools were very weak then. You know, this weird thing, the public schools, the private schools, they were very weak then. And I can't remember if it was George Orwell or Graham Greene saying there's no way you're going to have public schools continuing. And partly because the 1944 Education Act did not bring the public schools into the new post-war system they have continued they have I, I, they've flourished you know and it, it a really interesting thing about them is that they become more and more expensive I mean I would if you look at school wars I go to Wellington to see Anthony Seldon when he was yeah. the head of Wellington and I think I say there the average fee is 30,000 a year you know, that was 10 years ago. Now I think the average fee for those sort of schools, 45,000 a year. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say about that is that's such a lot of money to pay out of taxed income for your children. Only the super rich can afford it. Yeah. You have got, had heads of more kind of standard private schools. I think there was one in Wimbledon where he said, we're not any longer getting the doctors and lawyers sending their children here. It is the super rich and the oligarchs. And, and that, I think a, 
a private school system that only educates the very rich in a way worries me less than that that takes a bigger amount of society and that separates off more people if that doesn't sound um, I know I know what you mean. I think I think that both of them are are not ideal. And some of those places, you know, you mentioned Wellington and it's, I mean it, the, the, that place is unbelievable, isn't it? It's like a just like this stately home, this castle sort of building and there are many there are many like them. And I it's know, I, I don't think people realize it. I think that private schools remain oddly the most publicized secret of our society. Their existence is you know, we're told that they create the leaders and they have the brilliant education. We we talk about private schools constantly, but I don't think most people realise the amount of land they take up. Mm. The privilege. Oh, it's mad, isn't it? I think you talked about that in the book. The Wellington is actually like seventeen rugby pitches, like whatever. Those multiple theatres, swimming pools. They had, I think, their own art gallery that was linked directly to the Saatchi and Saatchi website, probably not still the case. But I remember going for a walk along the River Thames a while ago and we were running along some open fields and the person I was walking with said, oh, well, that's the playing fields of a, a big London private school that I won't name. But you often come across that, just the land. Yeah. In a crowded... So I think they are a well-kept secret. And I think as far as I understand it from journalistic work I've done in different parts of the country, in small towns, the private school will also be kind of hidden away. So I, I think, but you know, I've learned a lot about private schools because I, I'm a co-founder of the Private Education Policy Forum, which is trying to find out as much about how private schools work, yeah. their finances, their assets, you know, the expansion of private schools overseas now, satellite schools are set up and so on, um, which brings some schools profit, other schools it's just the borrowed franchise and so on. There's a lot to learn and and learning because we've our group is the first ever, as far as I know, reforming group set up around private education. Now, I could be wrong on that, but certainly the first I'm aware of. Well, there was Abolish Eaton during the Corbyn era. That's right. But they, they, I suppose they sort of suffered with Corbyn going. And also they were more of a sort of one idea, abolishing private schools, get rid of them altogether. Whereas I think campaigning now is more incremental and probably a bit less radical. Yeah, people are talking about removing um, like charitable status or, or tax exemption. Yeah, you were talking, there's an interesting bit in the introduction to life lessons where you were talking about vocabulary. First of all, that they're often referred to as, as public schools, which is just ridiculous because they're anything but. Uh, and then you were saying that like people often refer to them as, as independent schools, but you say that... Um, that while you agree that private schools are at arm's length from society's most pressing problems, <laughs> this too this too is a misnomer given the large amounts of public subsidy channeled into these fee-paying institutions. And and it is outrageous. And for, for so many reasons, <clears throat> like I remember when I was working at a school, it will also remain nameless, a, a really one of these ones that looked like a castle. And it's in London. And um, and it's really near to like quite a rough area of London. And, you know, the, the kids who are being driven to be dropped off in their Chelsea tractors and what have you must be looking out of the window on their way to this castle that they go to at, at, from age four. 
and they're looking at boarded up houses and you know people standing at bus stops looking thoroughly miserable you know so what the rest of it and and litter and rubbish everywhere and then they turn a corner and and the land just opens up and there's just all these leafy you know leafy enclaves and this mad massive castle that they go to school in and there's there's no way that as a as a from from the age of four year old or whatever it is upwards that you wouldn't think of yourself as a just a, from as a different species to those other people. Yes, that you, and that you would just be completely separate. And that you think of the others as, at best, unfortunate. Those people standing at the bus stop, at best, unfortunate, and at worst, you know, they brought about their own ill luck. And yeah. you know, if you said to me that in my one of my overriding themes of my campaigning life has been comprehensive education. This is the one that most uh, I feel most sort of passionate about is you will only understand your own society if you are educated with those who have lived completely different life to you. And I'm thinking about, and it always sounds like a odd way to advocate for something, but, you know, my daughters went to the local secondary school where there were people they were in classes with some were working class boys who went to oxford some were working class boys who got involved in gangs but that is a feature of our society and i think the kind of understanding that a middle class girl gets having been day in day out in a classroom with somebody whose experience is so different that never leaves them. Yeah. And they also, there's two things come from that. One, they understand that the fact that they live in a house with a garden is itself a huge privilege, just an ordinary house with a garden. But secondly, they don't have that judgmentalism about other people because they see and they, they feel compassion for people who are in terrible trouble. And they, you know, in the course of their schooling, they will go to places that those castle going students will never ever enter, you know. Yeah. Sort of I know. There, there was a there was a kid at one of that, that school, I've only just remembered this. There was a kid who goes to that castle school and he wasn't in. And the teacher said to him the next day, Why were you not in? And he was like, Oh, my chauffeur was ill. And he was <laughs> like, Well, why didn't you just get an Uber? And the kid just was like just so dismissive of the idea that he would that he would stoop to getting an Uber that, to school. That is an ex that's just it's, extra it's extraordinary. extraordinary level of privilege it's mad, I, I mean it? like that cannot be good for that child. <laughs> not good for that child not good for not good for society it's just like it's just bad all the way up and 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 it seems like it's like it's really refreshing to be having this conversation i, I have had one previous episode that featured largely on on private education it was with the author a guy called john higgs a brilliant um cultural historian who started started by saying that you can't look at the at the house of commons without thinking that there is something very wrong with our public school system with our private school system yeah. that, that all that leering and jeering and like it's just it's horrible it's embarrassing and it, and it's so clearly a continuation of of that of that sort of culture when you hear you know jacob reese mogg like belittling some other um politician because he was a wickhamist who went oh to i whatever. know you yeah. know i often you know. think of that and i thought that was just so i mean most of the public that would go over their heads yeah right yeah first of all thankfully and the fact that wickhamist is somebody who went to winchester which is some little sort of is you just think 
you know goes crazy but i i actually think that the um the our political leaders over the last 10 years cameron osborne clegg moving into farce johnson reese mogg and now moving back to to sunak have have helped the case about private education because <laughs> the only somebody who is very wealthy could have probably been comfortable with austerity and felt it was uh, a necessary and good thing. I mean, I know Labour supported elements of it, but were deeply uncomfortable about it. And then I think Johnson, I mean, Johnson's a, you know, he's a very particular figure, but he's not a good advert for a very expensive education, morally. No. Morally, although he's a very, you know, I think Johnson is an exceptional, strange, strangely exceptional communicator. But I think to have Rishi Sunak, who is so wealthy, imposing a pay freeze on public sector workers, sits so uncomfortably, not just with me, but with so many people. And, and the fact that the country supports the rail workers, supports, you know, on the whole. Mm-hmm and supports the nurses and the teachers and I mean it's everyone junior doctors it I I just feel that I think that's helping the argument that this silo education just can't be good for anyone but it's really it's not just about they shouldn't have what they have because it's bad for them it's how are we going to equalize resources how are we going to give the resources to the people who need it most Absolutely. And it just seems obvious to me, at least, that that a healthy society is one that mixes, like, like as you say, that people from all walks of life mix in the way that you were just describing. And there's a there's a thing in, in the in your book, uh, I think it was in School Wars, School Wars, there was a quote from Clyde Chitty, who you mentioned earlier, who said that <clears throat> it was easy to ridicule the concept of the social mix where the Duke lies down with the doctor and the Marquis and the Milkman are as one. Yeah. That sounds amazing to me. Like I think that that, know, that sounds you know, like a... It's... It's really funny you say that because I think for those comprehensive educators of the 60s and 70s, they didn't see it as a social thing. They saw it as an educational, you know, just why shouldn't all children be educated together? So I've always got a bit of me. I remember that because I know <laughs> I was sort of raised in that thinking. It isn't really a social experiment, but I think it does create different sorts of citizens. And I, I, I once said this, I did a debate with the head of Westminster and David Kiniston at our local school about private education. And I said what was so interesting was that looking at it, we were looking at it from every angle, but one angle is that the middle-class children who go to local comprehensives often end up at the same universities as those who went to very expensive private schools. So you're sort of wondering what, but that they were very, became very different citizens. And also I can see, and I've done work on this, I did a debate at York University not long ago about this, that the privately educated and the state educated tend to mix when they get to university even. And um, there's it, that silo mentality then goes through into the into the workplace, yeah. and goes through throughout life, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the I've language. Not, I've not kept in touch with anyone I knew at private school. I mean, okay, it was like years ago, as my children would say, it was in the 17th century, mum. <laughs> but, you know, I, but I, my own, you know, I can see that with younger people that once they go into the different systems, they're off. They're in a sort of different world. And uh, is that a moral question? Is that part of what we're talking about? Well, yes, it is. But the really important thing is give those children 
who need it, those young people who need it, let them have proper science labs, let them have proper art lessons, let them learn music, let them have smaller classes, not let them, make sure they do. And that is the really crucial thing. And if we have to take, I mean, it's largely symbolic taking money from the private schools, but I think that's a good transfer of wealth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and so so let's assume that that we agree <laughs> that that um that at least at least theoretically that we should move towards and you use the word integrated system, yeah. which is an interesting word because it's the word that's also used to describe schooling in Northern Ireland, where where once the idea of an integrated school system where Catholic and Protestant children would learn side by side was once considered to be just completely impossible, undoable and undesirable. And now like the vast majority of schools in Northern Ireland are integrated. And so, so like my question is, is it possible to integrate public and private schools? And there was, I remember we spoke about this a week or so ago when we chatted, there was an episode recently of of a news, the news agents podcast where they had two head teachers on, and they were talking about this and they basically were in agreement that it's not doable. And they were both sort of saying, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to, like you said, you know, you like if, if you could design an education system from scratch, of course, you wouldn't have private education. But as you said earlier, you know, we are where we are. And if you wanted to change things, I wouldn't start from here. We have this legacy and there's nothing that we can do about it. And the best that they could come up with was that they would say, well, we need to tighten the criteria so that they have to do more to demonstrate that they deserve this charitable status that they have. And it just seemed like just such a a, a lack of ambition on this question. And so I was just, you know, wondering, you know, this idea of abolish Eton or, you know, like just like integrate private and public schools, is it possible? To what extent have you thought about this? And do you think it's actually, is there a path? Well, is there a path? God, I mean, I think there is a path, but well, it's a bit back to that Milton Friedman quote, when there's a crisis, what are the ideas lying about? And then going back to the Second World War, look at the amazing changes that happened after the Second World War, which was a prolonged crisis of a world war. Mm. You know, crisis like that, I could see there being very quick change. We've had many crises of the kinds I've identified, austerity, pandemic, cost of living crisis. And it's funny enough, everyone seems to have got very cautious. I mean, another argument actually is that you need a period of economic flourishing for change to happen, which is an argument around the 60s and 70s. So I don't know. I could see it happening. I don't see it happening now with the late. I mean, I'm interested that, that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party have nailed their colours so firmly to the getting rid of charitable status that's quite radical for labor but that, <laughs> that's nowhere near abolition or integration is it no. it's just saying quite rightly these affluent schools they're not charities they're educating the well off so that's being thought through now and then slightly separately which i think would be a treasury bill putting that on school fees which is an idea that comes from andrew adonis originally mm an opportunity tax, again, quite a radical idea for Labour. So there's that. But if you were really to think about a pathway through, I think you'd have to think, I always think with politics, it's best to to promote something positive rather than say, tear anything down. Don't tear, and particularly schools, even schools that you and I might feel uncomfortable about, you don't want to tear down Eton. What about making Eton into a sixth form college for everybody in Berkshire yeah what about making these big 
uh, well, I mean, actually, sixth form colleges, which I think are brilliant when they work well, I think a lot of these schools would work very well as sixth form colleges. Um, I I could see it being that there is um, there is a, a route that was developed and which was supported by the government under the new schools network of struggling private schools, smaller ones, because let's face it, only a small percentage of private schools are these big public schools. A lot of them are smaller schools. The Independent Schools Council call them community schools. They're not my view of the community school. I think if you're paying a fee, you're somewhat separate and independent from the community. But um, some of them that are struggling and might struggle under charitable status being lost or that on fees, there is a route now to come into the state system. And I think conversion is another route. So I can see it happening. I think a lot of work has to be done. I think you have to preserve the freedom of parents to pay for things if they want, because if you don't, you wouldn't be able to have piano lessons. You wouldn't be able to have private, you know. A yeah, lot of, of course. Yeah. So you have to, but I, and and I think you have to, you know, you have to invest in your state schools so that they become, you know, flourishing enough, free enough, interesting enough that everybody except the people with the chauffeur who's off ill are happy to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I, what worries me is that the growing inequality of our society that's now really a problem with inflation and all the rest of it is making the social problems around it even more intractable. So I can't, I want to say I can see a way, I can imagine some convulsion where suddenly a whole load of things happen. I'm committed to create, to setting out some of those ideas that might be lying around at that time. Yeah. Making them sound appealing. And um, I'd be really, really happy if that did happen. Yes. Um, I think that would be, just be extraordinary. It would change our society completely. Wouldn't it just? It really would, and and in a really positive way. And 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 with regard to the other thing on this point about the 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 the, the dogs' breakfast of a, of a school system that we have, and you were saying that the EPI was talking about making every oh, the, oh sorry the government saying that they want to make every school an academy to just make everything the same essentially. Every school must go into a multi academy trust. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um. By twenty thirty. Um. I mean, do you think that that's well? Uh, Apparently, that's, you know, there are local authorities holding out, single academies holding out, maintained schools holding out. So it's going to be hard. And I think Labour won't push that. I mean, I'm a vice president of the Socialist Education Association, which has a campaign, Give Us Back Our Schools, which is about returning schools to local authority support. I don't like the word control because I don't think local authorities did control mm, their schools. I think they provided services, they provided support. I think you, I'm very sympathetic to that idea. I think you'd have to go in stages, particularly as Labour, new Labour under Blair was central in moving, in undermining local authorities. And that was a lot of what somebody like Fiona Miller, and I learned through her, was protesting against, you know, she was very much a new Labour figure, but just felt that they had got it wrong on this attack on local authorities. But there are some interesting ideas lying around for democratising multi-academy trusts, um, 
creating better accountability connection between local areas. Um, David Wolf and Anne West have written an interesting paper on this for the LSE on ways to bring back democratic control without going right back to, I mean, local authorities have been dismantled on the whole. So you'd have to reinvent the system. I mean, I don't mind the idea of small sort of trusts, groups of schools. I think that, you know, probably could work quite well, but it should be within a, a more accountable model regionally. And of course, now we have the Andy, not the Andy Burns, now we have mayors and regional and devolution. So, I, I mean, in some ways it would be about reinventing a model we had before, but politics being dynamic and structures being dynamic, it will, it will look different. But I'd like to see Labour moving the system that way and taking out the corporate money-making um, sort of private company element in the school system, definitely. Mm. Can I mention one other thing, which is where we met, is um, uh, stopping the 11 plus test. Yeah. It says no. I really think it's the weakest case in the whole of education, testing and dividing children at 10 and 11. Yeah. And there's no question that where selection exists, it benefits the already well-off. 12% come from private schools and they get a free education in the secondary sector through this test, which they're heavily tutored for. Under Theresa May, she said, we will expand grammars if they take more disadvantaged children. Evidence out just today reported saying they're not, you know. Yeah. It's, and, but, Grammar schools are considered the jewels in the crown of these backward-looking local authorities. And um, it's become even more complicated. So many of them are now academies, which means they're autonomous and so on. But I see no case. I see no case for that division at all. Yeah, I agree. It was very moving, wasn't it? It was quite powerful that evening. Yeah. Um, there was the, the police officer, I can't remember her name, the lady who was the, the, the inspiration for Prime Suspect. Yes. He spoke very movingly about having failed the 11 plus as a child and the division that that that, that sowed in her family and even becoming as, as successful as she was. It was only after she left the police force and did a did a postgraduate degree, I think she said, a master's that, that she finally felt that she was that she was able to throw off the, this sort of the, the shackles of this label of, of, as like you're an educational failure. What a thing to do to a, to a person, like you say, at the age of 10 and 11, and something that sticks with people for the whole of their lives. Like, I, mean, I, I agree, there is no case for it. There's no case for it. And, you know, thousands of children are feeling like that every year now. And also, is it good to be told at 11, you're cleverer than most people, and then to go into a grammar school um, and just to have that slight sense of, I'm cleverer, but education is not about dislabeling who you are education is a dynamic process of constantly learning so i don't think it's very good to be told that you're better than at that young age either yeah right I don't yeah think that's good so um there's a lot of work to be done comprehensive future which i'm now i've stepped back from being a chair now a vice chair we're doing quite a lot of work now on the psychological impact of the 11 plus which is kind of incredible that nobody's really done more work on that because mm. in this era around mental health and the well-being of children how can you justify that 
so many people that I speak to on this podcast talk about it, either that they failed it or that they passed it or that they passed and their brother failed or so something. It's it's absolutely amazing like how how current it is in in, know, you know, in, and, in and, people of our generation. And yet, I uh, tell me if you've heard Labour coming out against the eleven plus in the areas where it still exists. They're totally against expansion. Yeah. But, you know, nobody will really think about how to transform uh, to to stop the eleven plus where it still exists. It's it's kind of taboo. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. It's one. I guess it's one of those things. It's just not. It's just not a fight that seems to be worth spending political well, capital that's what on. They think. You know. That's what yeah. People, that's exactly what you hear. Yes. But I have one other positive I want to talk about before on. we close, which is okay. really really important. Um, because it's good to end on a positive note, and we've touched on it through this, is the idea of a baccalaureate, a reform of our entire system um, along a baccalaureate model. And I would say to anyone listening, look at Tom Sherrington's model on the Rethinking Assessment website, look at the Heads Roundtable work on it, and you will know, James, as I do, that it's that sort of Tomlinson report of 2004 started to propose these kind of changes where you could you widened what young people were learning you put exams in their place I think there is a place for exams but I think there's a place for project work I think there's a place for personal skills I think there's everything against saying you narrow down to three or four academic subjects at 16 you know let everyone have a mix of the vocational and academic there's the case for everyone coming out of school with a personal transcript, putting down all their skills. Employers would love it. Um, and what's canny about the back model is it can be, it can fit around what we have now. It's not a huge revolutionary idea. It's a, it's a, it can ease into the system we have now, but just literally ease the system away from this high stakes narrow view of what a good education is mm. so i i uh, the times educational commission came out supporting it i see rishi sunak supported it in a statement early on in his premiership or maybe mm. when he was campaigning against this trust and didn't win the first time but i think it was when he became pm so really labor should be coming out and saying a lot more about it because it's a model that could appeal to all parents you know, if you've got a very academic child, they can still do philosophy and physics and whatever A-level, but they can also have a um, a go at debating and they can do the art that they love. And I remember seeing something about the Canadian system, which has much a much broader model than we do, and seeing this very clever young woman being interviewed on a film, I think made by Rhonda Evans, who's a really good educational filmmaker, and she says, you know, oh, I'm doing hairdressing because I really love hairdressing. And then I'm going to my philosophy class. And I just thought, love yes. it. Yes. I mean, because in this system, hairdressing is for, you know, it's for one sort of person and yeah. philosophy is for another. It's crazy. Totally agree. I used to work at a school where we were, we were we were creating so many more hairdressers than there was demand for hairdressing in the local <laughs> community. But it was just the thing that they did with those types of kids. 
Yeah. Ridiculous. So absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Let's 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 draw it to a close on that positive note. Yes. A cheer for the cheer for the uh, for the. I think I think does does Tom call it a national baccalaureate? National that... baccalaureate. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there are all sorts of models. The back is, but the national back. That's Tom Sherrington's idea. I mean, he's done a lot of really deep thinking about it. And in yeah. a way, it kind of because he's been a head of a grammar and a head of a comprehensive, and so he's seen all the system. And I think it is a a comprehensive model that kind of could work in a genuinely comprehensive system. So it's got lots of advantages. Mm, I totally agree. Well, thank you for that. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, spending some time with you. Is there anything that you'd like to 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 leave with our listeners? Is there anything that you'd like to alert their attention to? Possibly this this new piece that you're writing, the, the essay that you mentioned. Where can we find that? Oh yes, that? that that's coming out. That's uh, I think the one of the the opening essay of a book actually about reform of teacher education and worry about about that initial teacher education. Um, no, I mean I'd like to. I would like to say to um to people listening, do look at Forum, which is published by Lawrence and Wishart, which is a really really interesting academic journal, but it's very accessible and lots of ideas alternative ideas do check out comprehensive future private education policy forum um I, i'll tell you what i didn't get to talk about but i will just mention is i sat on the commission looking into adult education and lifelong learning and what needs to be done there and um, i think there's some really important reforms that need to happen so read the Centenary Commission report on adult education. There's just a lot of good ideas out there, there are a lot of great people. And I would say to your listeners, I think we're at a point where things might change, could change, should change. Mm. So let's put our shoulder to the wheel in making that happen. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, and and uh, there's there's lots of things that I'd love to talk to you about offline as well. Because I feel um, I've spent some... the rest of the, most of my life with you now, Jake. <laughs> All right, I I'll give I'll give you a few days to recover before I darken your inbox once again. Um, thank you, Melissa. It's been really really fun spending time with you. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, and speak soon. Time is a measure of change. We don't Measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change. And if we don't try.